Hey guys, welcome to the first episode of Off Cooldown. Um, I'm pretty excited to be here. So I'm Q, and I'm here with Cal and Newt. Hey guys. Hey. Oh. And uh, today we're gonna be talking about our top five game recommendations. Uh, just as a general sort of thing, like, well, I wanted to know what you guys uh, were using as your criteria for picking your top five games. Sort of like, was it games that you particularly liked? Are they your favorites? Or maybe there's just something innovative about it, or you think that a lot of people would enjoy playing them? Mm, for me, I have to have finished it or have played it extensively before I can recommend it. And I also factored in, like, is it a good representative of the franchise it's from? Because a bunch of my recommendations are from a franchise. And then I also wanted to highlight some indie games that might need more spotlight on them. And um, what about you, Newt? For me, all of my five recommendations actually are games that I played extensively except for one. So the four games that I will be recommending are games that I really like and spent a lot of time playing and I want more people to experience those games. And then one of those games is more of an aspirational game, like I would like to play that with someone someday. Uh, you'll find out later what I'm talking about. Yeah, okay. and for me, well, it's kind of the same as you guys. Like I've, most of the games that I'm recommending, actually all of the games that I'm recommending, I have played pretty extensively. And one of the reasons that I picked them is because, well, I just think that they're really good games they're like they, they, some of them can be a bit more formulaic than others but i just think they're really good at what they do and maybe a couple of them are a bit more innovative than others but yeah you know i guess we should just get into it then yeah i'd like to hear your first game recommendation you talked about innovation so i'm excited to see what kind of games you think are innovative especially since uh, from looking at the outline when we were writing uh, our thoughts about this first episode. I was looking at some of our games. Most of them are kind of old, like from the past 10 years. So innovation from the past 10 years, probably. So, yeah. Uh, you know, the the game market's kind of... Uh, I wouldn't say... Yeah, it's pretty saturated, you know. There's so many developers now, indie and AAA alike, that uh, so a lot of the time we tend to fall into formulas. And I'm not gonna say that this is like something brand new, like it's completely reinvented the wheel or anything. But yeah, my first game recommendation would be Return of the Obra Dinn. Uh, it's a game by solo game developer Lucas Pope, and uh, it's available on pretty much every console. I think it's on Mac, PC, Switch, PS4, and the Xbox One. So it's a mystery detective sort of game. Um, you know, the classic sort of who done it, like the the really really uh, old style where you kind of just you know, you're an investigator, you want to go around and figure out why something happened, how it happened, that sort of thing. But I think what makes uh, Return of the Oberdin particularly special is the way that it's got this really nice twist on the genre. So, um, you know how in regular detective games, right? It's kind of just, um, you go around and you kind of talk to everybody and you interact with every item so you can kind of gain information. And then you try to, you know, come to a conclusion from that. Because, you know, that's basically how the genre works. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I totally know what you're talking about. Because um, you'll find out later, one of my recommendations actually also a detective game. But totally different. Uh, one of the striking things that I can see from this video that we're previewing right now, it's this game has a very uh, strange, well, I, I'm not going to call it strange, but it's very striking, very different art style. Does this art style actually do anything for the gameplay or is this mostly just superficial kind of thing 
So the, the art style is what uh, the game developer Lucas Pope describes as one bit. I don't I don't know if that's accurate. I, don't, I actually don't know the technicals behind it, but I think it does add quite a bit to the experience. It it adds quite a bit to the atmosphere and the feel of it because uh, in the game, right? So the story is that it takes place in 1907, and uh, you're playing as an insurance agent. A really exciting job, you can imagine. And uh, you're tasked to find out what happened to the 60 souls that were on board the ship called the Oberdin. So the first thing that I think the art style does for it is that it really helps set the tone of the whole thing. Like, it feels kind of drab, it feels kind of dreary, and at the same time, it kind of looks, the whole thing kind of looks like it could have been drawn on a piece of parchment, right? Yeah. And uh, so I think that really helps out with the setting. And I don't want to get into spoilers as much as possible because this is one of those games where you should really just play it. I, I want to speak as little of the story as I possibly can because it's something that you should really experience on your own. But it adds to atmosphere in a lot of parts. Like there are certain uh, moments in the game that I feel like with the more realistic or colorful art style just wouldn't feel the same at all. So as for the gameplay of uh, Oberdin itself, it's a game where you have a pocket watch, and this uh, pocket watch lets you uh, allows the player to teleport, uh, or more of like view the snapshot in time um, from the moment somebody died. So there are 60 people aboard the Oberdin, and you're you're tasked with figuring out what happened to all of them. They're either dead or missing, and through the help of this pocket watch, you can approach any corpse that you find on the ship. And then it'll take you to the exact moment of their death where you can explore in 3D space. Like, and you can actually go around and explore and take a look at everyone that was present during that moment. And so you, you know, you, you, the, the loop of the game kind of is about going around to different corpses and uh, trying to figure out the identities of the 60 people and the fates of the 60 people on board the ship by using the clues that you find at the moment of their death. So. Like I said, I don't want to spoil anything, but for example, what I think makes it unique is the way that you gather information. Aside from, you know, the going around the ship and uh, using the pocket watch to gain information, you're also given like this, uh, this notebook where you can keep track of, uh, there's a list of everybody's names and they're all of the possible jobs and all the possible ways that they might have died. And uh, there's also like a picture, a portrait of the entire crew. So you can try to match the faces with the ones that you see in the book. Amazing and yeah. So in, in the first, let's say like the first five minutes, first three minutes of the game, it opens up with uh, well, the first time you use the pocket watch on the first corpse that you see on the deck. The first thing that you're greeted with is a bit of text when it takes you back to that point, and the text reads something like uh, "Captain, open the door," and then there's a gunshot. And in that moment, you're taken. The controls are given back to the player, and then you're presented with the scene of a shirtless man uh, firing a flintlock pistol at somebody. And that guy gets struck in the chest. So we can, from that, like, from the text that was given to us at the beginning of the scene, right, we can assume that the person shooting who was inside the doorway was the captain, and whoever the person getting shot was the person speaking. So that gives you a little bit of information about that, right? And then later on in the game, you come across, well, later on, I mean, like, maybe a minute after, you come across the captain's body. And if you go back to the moment of his death, you're greeted with the text where he says, uh, the captain says, Abigail, I'm sorry your brother, I shot him, something like that. And the captain uh, then uh, fires the pistol into his mouth, killing him. So that, from that, you're given two more pieces of information. Like uh, whoever the captain shot was somebody named Abigail's brother. 
So then you can then open up the book and take a look at the list of names and you'll see that there's somebody named Abigail and she has a maiden name and a last name. So you can assume that the brother or is either a brother-in-law or a biological brother. So you, then you'll have to look at the last names of the names of other people on the ship so you can then determine the identity of the brother. And you can list down on the book that, you know, uh, now I know that Abigail's brother was shot by the captain. And then that sort of information gathering is how the rest of the game works where you kind of go around through the different scenes and if you want to figure out uh, who a person is, because, you know, uh, figuring out how they died is the easy part, because the, the stopwatch takes you, the pocket watch takes you to the moment of their death. I think what makes it more interesting is the fact that the, re the way that you figure out who killed them or like how they died, now who, who killed them or, you know, who they are is all about going to multiple different instances of all the deaths of all the people aboard the ship and trying to gather all the little pieces of information and put it together. So you can make connections in the relationships of everyone just based on these kind of flashbacks that you get from the pocket watch you mentioned. Yeah, that's pretty much how the whole game works. Um, that's your only way really of gathering information is from all of these little flashbacks and you'll have to piece everything together. I think, you know, it's just one of those games where you'll, you'll sit down, maybe have a notebook out so you can take notes on everything because it's every story and every death is, is so well written and it's so intertwined that you really have to take a break, take a step back and look at all the details. Because uh, when you're trying to figure out the way that a person dies, and I think this is something that uh, Oberdin does differently from other detective games. Because have you ever played like, I mean, I'm pretty sure you guys have like Telltale games or Bioware games, right? Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, like when, when you're figuring out, like if there's like a, a mystery or a detective section in the game, like let's say in The Wolf Among Us, right? When you're trying to figure out answers to something, you have like maybe four or five set different answers that your character could say. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it, it kind of feels to some degree like that that method uh, of you being given dialogue options kind of uh, kind of makes it so that... Uh, it actually you gives you the just, answer and you just have yeah, to figure yeah. it out. Yeah, multiple like, choice. You, you could have like a vague idea of what happened and then you could just be like, oh, uh, based off of what little I know here, right? Um, I can just come to this conclusion because that's what the game offered me. Or maybe you didn't even pay attention at all. You could just button mash your way through it and maybe you'll get it right. Yeah, you can actually yeah. see it here in the trailer that we're looking at. Uh, at some portion of it, it shows you like, uh, it lets you match like permutations of uh, scenarios or possible scenarios. Like a person gets shot by someone and each one of those can be... Um, toggled or have a different answer so there's like a lot uh, of different answers that you can arrive to just by yourself through the game so you can't really just um, button mash your way through this game or like do guesswork you really have to figure out the mystery yeah and I think that's part of what makes it unique and interesting is that you in order to solve the mystery of what happened you actually have to you know solve the mystery you can't just go around it's not going to be handed to you on a silver spoon on a silver platter you know it's not going to be fed to you but at the same time i don't think that it's too difficult of a game i i heard that you can actually finish the game without actually figuring out what happened to everybody uh personally i i'm a bit of thorough when it comes to that sort of thing so i sat down maybe i felt like 12 or 15 hours total game time just trying to figure out what happened to everybody plus it really helped that the story was interesting and that it was it was well written and that you actually 
want to figure out because as you as you go along and figure out what happens to each of these people when you figure out uh, the circumstances of your death the story also kind of unfolds you know you're maybe you're given the end of the story at first and then the middle and then you slowly start to figure out um uh you know the motivations for everything that's happening aboard the ship like 60 people that 60 people that just disappeared and 60 people that uh there was mutiny there was murder there was you know and the story slowly unfolds to you non-linearly as you go through all of these different uh these different death scenarios of the different crewmates and the best part is that you don't you're not railroaded into trying to figure out what happened to a person in any particular order you could uh, you can decide which one of the bodies you want to investigate first. So the storytelling is very non-linear, but it still tells this really nice and cohesive story overall, which I don't know. I, I just think that the game does, it doesn't do, uh, you know, a whole lot. It's not anything flashy or it doesn't add so many new mechanics, but everything that it does, it does so well in such a condensed form, like in such a condensed way that every, uh, every aspect of it is so well thought about and it all ties in really, really well together. Yeah, so I think that's going to be a recurring theme uh, in the games that we're going to be recommending, you guys. The the way a game makes you invested to its story, that'll make you want to see things through until the end. So yeah, and also on top of that, I think it would be like the cohesion of uh, of gameplay mechanics and story, and the way that they use uh, those mechanics to deepen the themes of the story. You know. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, Return of the Obadin. Play it, please. You really won't regret it. It's amazing. Okay, so I, I guess it's time for the next game recommendation. How would you All like right. to take the second one? Sure. Okay, so I feel like every friend that I've ever talked to already knows what's coming. But my first recommendation is, of course, critically acclaimed MMORPG by Square Enix that now includes a free trial up to level 60 including the first expansion Heavensward with no restriction on playtime Final Fantasy 14 Oh you really so, did uh, the <laughs> You really did the I, full I, copy pasta It's required <laughs> Okay so I can't recommend FF14 without saying the whole spiel but aside memes aside it really is. I've never really got into MMOs before. Like I played them casually during, like you know, the Ragnarok era. I played a bit of Perfect World and stuff like that. But those all felt like level grinds in general. FF14 is the first MMO where I like really reached the end game and stayed in the end game. I like. I feel like I did a lot of what this game has to offer. So it has a bit of something for everyone. It has raids for the hardcore people who want to optimize it has housing for people that want to decorate houses like me you can craft and play the market board and become a billionaire or you can just you know sub every time there's a new story patch and just enjoy the story because the story of this game is actually on par with the other final fantasies i mean a lot of people will like but it's an mmo uh I sincerely feel that FF14 story is worth the grind. It's slow paced at the beginning, but once you reach Heaven's Word, it gets a lot you know, more hype. Well, once you reach the part where the free trial ends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gets... Well, you get you get to finish the first as, as somebody who's also played uh, FF14 extensively, um, I think I've 
I don't think I've come close to Cal's hours, but yeah, I'm around 1,000, 1,500 hours into the game. Uh, I have to agree with that. Like, the story is great, especially the latest expansion, Shadowbringers. Probably one of my favorite RPG stories in a very, very long time. And that's, I think that's really saying something. Yeah. But yeah, it does start out pretty slow, don't you think? Like, ARR yeah, was, yeah. Uh, it was a bit of a slog. I feel like ARR is like the main sticking point. This is where my litmus test for every friend that I recommend this game to. If they finish ARR, they usually stay until the end. But if they don't, they probably don't come back. So ARR is kind of great if you're into like old school MMOs. Like, you know, you like talk a lot. There's a lot of fetch quests and stuff. It's not bad. It's a good foundation for the game. And I absolutely recommend playing through it if you want to get the full payoff at the end. But I just feel like it's... It is a slog. Yeah, <laughs> it's really long. <laughs> I feel like I spent too much time playing ARR. If if like if I knew how good the rest of it would be, it probably would feel shorter. But I don't think it's the best way to hook people on, honestly. Yeah, they have shortened it like recently in some patches, but I still feel it's a bit too long. Also, to clarify, ARR is a Realm Reborn. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's the it's the base game. Yeah, the base FF14. But don't worry, the free trial goes all the way until Heaven's War at the level 60. Yeah. So you'll get the first the first expansion, which is actually pretty good. Uh, and then I guess also the dev got, like, team a hot elf uh, guy in it. A lot, like three, three elf guys, if you're into that. Yeah, so as someone who doesn't actually play a Realm Reborn or Final Fantasy XIV a lot, like these two, I, I've actually played a short while of the game but never got out of the starting area so I don't think uh, I can give so much a lot of impressions here that would be relevant but uh, I think I from from the way I see it I have a lot of friends who play Final Fantasy 14 mostly because of Cal here she has recommended it to a lot of our mutual friends but from <laughs> from the way I see it it really sucks you in like uh, the people I know who play this game who doesn't usually use Twitter end up tweeting non-stop about Final Fantasy 14 once they started subbing and yeah. it, it really I think it really hooks you then uh, it's hook line and sinker afterwards so after yeah, you finish Heaven's Word you're really gonna feel like you, you, you gotta buy or you gotta subscribe for the game after you finish Heaven's Word and thankfully I've never reached that part yet <laughs> But you know, being an MMO, like one of the biggest draws, and I think what Final Fantasy does well is the way it handles its community. Like, I don't think you can talk about FF14 without talking about how good the community is around it. Yeah, that's true. The from in-game events to the devs and how they communicate to us, it just feels very homey. Like it's very cozy. When you watch like the dev team, they have like every three months, uh, they have a producer live letter where they talk to us about what's coming up new features stuff like that sometimes they feature fan work it, it just feels very transparent like most other dev teams you don't really see them unless it's like the big trailer reveal and then they disappear and then you just you know release the game but since ff14 is an mmo and the devs did kind of resurrect this from death <laughs> once already i feel like they really grow with the players like they really care about what we want they even like threw in an extra race for Endwalker and no one expected it so they're adding Mel Vieira next expansion is that a first in the Final Fantasy series like to ever see Mel Vieira's yes it, it's the first time we're ever gonna see Mel Vieira they're not as small as I thought they'd be 
Well, speaking yeah. of communities, Cal, uh, can you tell us about how it was like going from the Dota 2 community to Final Fantasy 14? Oh, okay. That's like really night and day for me. So I went into FF14 after I kind of got tired of Dota because of eh, toxicity. So when I was like a baby sprout in FF14, I was like super cautious. I never really talked a lot. And then when I got it, got added into an FC, it was a really big FC. So like there are 200 people. Oh, FC is like the in-game guild. So there's like 200 people and they like have their own friend group. So I didn't really talk a lot then. And then eventually, like I took a break from the game. It is monthly subscription, and I was in like college, and I didn't have a job at the time. So, so I took break. And then when I came back, I got into a different FC that was like 18 people. So it was a bit more homey. And then I eventually opened up, made some friends. It's... And pulled the rest of us into it. Yeah, and then sucked everyone into it, <laughs> and turned them into a bot that just says. Final Fantasy XIV, the critically acclaimed MMO by Square Enix. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I really have made a lot of good friends from this game, both here in the Philippines and outside. And honestly, it's the most non-toxic community I've ever been a part of online. I mean, of course, there's some bad apples here and there, but I've never been like flamed in a dungeon if I'd made a mistake or if we wiped. Stuff like that. P- people are pretty chill, but maybe that's because I also play in Tonberry, which is a mixed server with the Japanese people and people from Australia, New Zealand, and Southeast Asia. So maybe it's partly also the language barrier. But yeah, I, I hear that uh, some of the other servers get different mileage, but overall, I don't know. The community seems pretty solid. Like from my experience with it, there's there's definitely some toxicity, but I feel like it's. It's a lot on more on the niche aspects of it, like the really high-end raiders or the hardcore PvP players. But then you know when you get when you get into something that competitive, I guess it makes sense that there's you know there's a bit of toxicity here and there. So Cal, yeah. where can people play Final Fantasy XIV? Okay. FF XIV is available on PS4. It got its PS PS5 version recently, so it's also available on PS5 now and also available on PC. Okay, so we've talked on end about you know the macro of it, but what about the actual gameplay? Because like I, I've played a lot of FF14 also, and when it comes down to the actual gameplay, I'm a really big fan of the high level sort of stuff. It's your classic MMO, right? So you've got your your GCD based combat. Yeah, it's uh, stop targeting. It's it's about doing rotations. Yeah, it's a lot like WoW, but quote unquote slower. Yeah, the global cooldown is 2.5 seconds uh, compared to WoW, which is like about a little over one second, I think. But it's really not that slow when you reach level cap because there's a shit ton of off cooldowns, uh, off global cooldowns that you weave inside. So I really enjoy the gameplay because. Uh, it's fast-paced. Well, I play bard, so it's a bit fast, I guess, compared to some other jobs. Uh, I also really like the raid mechanics because they require eight people to hone in and focus for 15 minutes, and everyone has to do the thing correctly. And if you make a mistake, you all wipe, and then you do this for three hours. Yes, every week, uh, three times a week. <laughs> I mean, of course, not everyone has to do that. If you're not playing like raids or anything, you still get to go through dungeons, which 
I think it's pretty fun. Your four-player content with a tank, a healer, and two DPSs, and you guys are just working together, slogging through trash mobs, fighting bosses, and then enjoying the scenery as well. Because a lot of the dungeons, they look really good, especially in the newer expansions. Yeah, dungeons. And you can enjoy the music, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah that's definitely something we have to talk about. The music in FF14 is just absolute chef's kiss. It's so good. Yeah, this is my second favorite soundtrack in all the video games, which is a bit cheating because there's so much music in FF14, but... I mean, yeah, the game's been running. Like, how long has it been a live service game? More than... Uh... Uh, how many years now? Six? More than I don't know actually. It's been it more... says 2013 here on our on our notes, so should have been eight. Eight? Yeah, something like yeah, eight, eight years running now. So that's a that's lot of music. Since Realm Reborn now, because there's also 1.0. The, the, the one change, that we uh... forget about. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they changed the composer somewhere in between, right? They came from uh, legendary FF composer. What was his name? Nobuo Uematsu. Yeah, uh, I think Oimatsu only did some of the tracks, but it's been soaking ever since Realm Reborn. Oh, okay, okay. My bad. Uh, what else? FF14 also, if you're a Final Fantasy fan, it has so many callbacks to other FFs that are, it's kind of fun finding out where the references are. Sometimes it's a piece of music, sometimes it's a boss, sometimes... Uh, like a mini, a pet? Yeah, a pet or an event or a quest. It's... You can get uh, you can get the, the regalia from FF15 as a mount. Yeah. And you can go on a road trip with three of your friends. <laughs> yeah, and just play, uh, then fish, and then go camping. Yeah, FF14 overall, definitely very immersive experience. Like, I think that this is definitely something that... I feel like it's something that uh, two out of three of us would recommend because of how much we've already played. But this doesn't yeah. count as our 16th recommendation, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it's not. <laughs> well, it sounds like a really amazing game. Actually, uh, I'm getting convinced to like try it again. I, I'm not going to lose anything if I try it again. I mean, anyway. I'm still in the free trial period. I haven't finished that yeah. part yet. So yeah, if I find the time, maybe I'll try to play again. But hopefully yes. next time I play, I get to play in Thornberry because I'm in a different server right now. Oh, yeah, there's yeah, a world yeah. transfer service that costs money, but since you're just starting out, you can probably just make a new character in Tomberry anyway. Yep. They're also adding server uh, world visit system for other servers, but we haven't had a lot of uh, details on how that's going to work cross data center yet. So, there's that. You can stay tuned for that. So yeah, FF14. Uh, try it Please out. Play. It's it's free until heaven's word. Wait, maybe we should just say the whole. Sp no, never mind. <laughs> I already said it. <laughs> All right. Looks like it's your turn, you. All right, so it's my turn. So for my game, well, it's my first recommendation. I'm already going dark and emotional. Uh, the game that I'm recommending is Disco Elysium, and I'm specifically recommending the final cut version of the game. So there's two versions. The first one, uh, the one that came out earlier. Uh, doesn't have vo full voice acting for all of the characters and all of the text but it's added in the final cut and if I'm not mistaken there's also uh, added new story branching storylines in the final cut version so there's pretty much more content in the final cut version and this game is available available for PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One and the Xbox Series X or slash S and it's also coming out on the Nintendo Switch soon so if you're taking notice of the video right now it's mostly text-based so it actually is 
a text-based role-playing adventure game which evolves from old LucasArts point-and-click adventure games. I'm not sure if you guys have played all games like that when you were younger. Uh, games like Grim Fandango or uh, Adventures on Man Monkey Island. What's your experience with those kinds of games, guys? Absolutely nothing besides Disco Elysium, I think. How about you, Cal? Uh, I've also played Disco Elysium, but I haven't played the previous games that you mentioned. Yeah, so when I was younger, I had a very bad computer. I can't run games that required fast reaction time, so I played games that allowed me to just click and wait for my character to move. And then, yeah, so that's why text-based role-playing adventure games were part of my childhood, actually. So in this game, in Disco Elysium, you play as an amnesiac police detective in the middle of a murder case. So imagine being like that. You're in the middle of a case, and you have no memory of anything, not even your name at this point. So you're a washed-up cop dealing with all sorts of substance withdrawal, and you're completely messed up physically, spiritually, and mentally. You just wake up in the middle of a day inside a motel with no recollection of why you're there, or what your name is, or what happened the night before and then you go down to the lobby and your your detective partner is there and is telling you hey we gotta solve the case and you're like what case what case yeah so if you haven't figured it out yet this game deals with very heavy themes and it's a very emotional game and it will lead to a lot of introspection so it'll make you question a lot of things about yourself about society and about the world around you and how you perceive it so if you're not ready to look at yourself in the mirror and ask these questions and like stare at yourself or like until someone knocks on the bathroom door then you probably shouldn't play this game yet but if you're up for a roller coaster ride of emotions then you should play disco elysium and apart from that this game allows you to tackle problems uh in a whole lot of different ways so uh, as i mentioned it's a text-based role-playing adventure game so there's some role-playing aspects so if you played other rpg games you'd figure out that this game has stats and skill points so you also level up in this game if you progress through the story and the interesting part here is you have to put up skill points on different aspects of your personality and your physique so you put up points on your strength on your uh, intellect and on your emotional powers so it really lets you solve different problems in the game and explore the story in a whole lot of different ways so one example here is uh, there's this one point in the game I'm trying not to I try to give an example that's not going to spoil much but there's one part of the game where you're tasked to climb a very steep ladder so basically you're just climbing a ladder right should be simple but you might not have enough motoric skill or basically your hand-eye coordination skill to successfully climb the ladder remember you're an amnesiac here with all sorts of substance withdrawal so you must uh, put yourself in the shoes of this person he's not in good shape so you can't just climb these uh, ladders like it's nothing right so instead of using motorics you can actually roll a shivers check or uh, if you if you play Dungeons and Dragons, you know how checks work, right? Uh, uh, you have to have enough skill points to be able to do certain things. So instead of doing a motoric skill check, you can do a shivers skill check. So shivers is the game skill stat for anything related to psychic powers or psychic energy. So what he does here is uh, your your character looks at the ladder and he's like, oh, I can't climb this using my hands and my legs. 
So I'm just gonna teleport myself up there at the top of the roof. And he closes his eyes and then you do the the you do the shivers check. And if you're successful, he'll be like when he opens his eyes, he's already on the top of the ladder. And he'll be like, Oh wow, I teleported. I did it. I climbed the ladder by teleporting myself up the ladder. And he looks down his partner and he's like, Hey, did you see that? I teleported up here. And his and his buddy's like, No, you just closed your eyes and went up. And that's it. This just opened your eyes and you're up there. So like he'll claim that he telepathically uh, climbed the ladder, but his partner's just like, No, he just climbed it. But your eyes were closed and you didn't really do anything special. So it's that kind of game that lets you, you know, uh, even though the, the results are the same, you climb the ladder, there's different sorts of um, story or text or uh, narrative that happens depending on how you build your character here. Yeah. So, yeah. The Discolation is a weird game. And I mean that in the best way. It's 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 wacky and it's it's strange in the way that it handles its mechanics and the way it's written. And I think that kind of makes it great. Sorry, yeah, uh, <laughs> you were saying I just wanted to mention that that it's it's not like your traditional RPG. It's it's really strange. Yeah. So speaking and, of strange, uh, you can actually um, draw parallels in this kind of game with other narrative-driven games like Life is Strange and uh, The Walking Dead or. Um, Wolf Among, Us. Wolf Among Us. Those games, those Telltale games, actually also evolved from the same kind of games that Disco Elysium came from. They're from the same vein. But as mentioned earlier already, uh, those games are more strict in how the story will progress, and it only more gives you like a, like a, an illusion of choice that you have like uh, control over what the how the story will unfold here it really does depend on how you build your character if you're a brony if you build your character into a brony type then you can solve problems so you're just punching everyone in the face but if you solve things through your psychic powers or as just so the detective claims to be his psychic powers then you'll have an entirely different story in your hands here so it also rewards you with different uh, play choose if you play it over and over again, but with different builds, it's gonna give you a very different story. And it actually also rewards you in failure. So, you, we don't recommend you to save scum the game. You don't save before a decision or a check, and then if you fail the check, you reload your save. You don't do that. Because in Disco Elysium, it rewards you even when you fail. Well, it doesn't necessarily reward you per se in the, in the sense that it'll give you extra stat points or um progresses the story all the time if you fail some checks sometimes if you fail a check you just have to come back later if you have uh, better skill points already but sometimes when you fail you can unlock new options or new dialogue options and the story can also diverge to a different uh, setting depending on how your character feels so for example here in the example that i mentioned earlier if you fail the shivers check He'll just say that his psychic powers isn't working, and you just have to return later when your psychic powers are better. So, but also, yeah, sometimes when you fail, you just die. Yeah, sometimes when you fail, you just die. You'll learn it if you try some, some something wacky like, at the start I, I, of the game. I remember, game. like, yeah, yeah. I think I was like less than a minute into the game, and I died. Yeah, you can oh. die. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can die of a heart attack if your build isn't very, you know, physically suited for. Um, for Rick, so mm. you have to remember this guy is an amnesiac, dealing with all sorts of substance abuse. So 
yeah. So I've yeah. actually uh, played a bit of Disco Elysium, but I and I mean this in the best way possible. But this game is emotionally exhausting. Like I can only play it like three hours at a time and then have to take a break. Even if it's really good and I'm interested to know what's happening, but like my brain is like so tired. <laughs> and you know the sound design of this game, even if it's just text based, it's really good. Uh, yeah. You really have to play the final cut version because in this version, all of the text, literally all of the text in the game is voice acted. And the voice acting in this game is very crisp and very suitable to the mood of the game. And by emotional, we're just gonna throw this out of the way. By emotional, we don't just mean all the negative emotions. This game also pulls your heartstrings sometimes yeah. and it also makes you laugh at points and makes you really happy at some points. So when we say emotional, it's all over the spectrum actually. It can make you feel all of all of thing all of the things like like a drug probably. I don't know. I wouldn't oh. know. So yeah. <laughs> Even if, if you, you want feel, a game that makes you feel if, if you want a game that makes you feel, period. Disco Elysium is the game for you. Also, Disco Elysium looks great. It's it's got these really painterly like visuals that you know it the environments look amazing. The animations—they look great. I just, you know, I just want to give props to that. It looks really, really good. Like everything from the UI to the background art to the character art—it all just—it looks really, really good. I, I couldn't help but find myself staring at like the menu at the beginning where you're picking your stats, like the one that's showing up in the trailer at some points. The art—I don't, I don't know—is it impressionist? Is it expressionist? I'm, I, I don't. I don't study art. I, I, I just can say it's more like painterly. Like yeah, it's, it's very painterly and there's a lot of abstraction to it. And it's just... It's great. And it's coupled with really good sound design. So yeah, so... Uh, Disco Elysium. Weird. Oddball. Great. Amazing. Yeah, so both I and yeah. Q really agree that Disco Elysium is a must recommend. Uh, hopefully, Cal finishes the game with the final cut soon so that we can discuss things I about the game. I don't mind recommending yeah. it. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, but uh, another game that both Q and I recommend together is the game that Q will be talking about next. Alright, so the next game to recommend would be uh, Warhammer Vermintide 2. It's a 1-4 to four player class-based co-op sort of uh, PvE slash zombie, I guess zombie game? It's, uh, it's an action RPG, first-person action RPG that's set in the Warhammer fantasy universe. I didn't really know anything about Warhammer's lore going into the game, but I learned quite a bit uh, for the game because I was that interested in it. So it was created and uh, published by Fat Shark. They're, I don't know if they're still considered uh, indie, but they're a relatively small studio. And I think the only games that they actually worked on were the Vermintide series. And coming out later this year is another game in the same vein called Darktide, which is set in the Warhammer 40k universe. So yeah, uh, Vermintide is a... I guess the best comparison point would be kind of like Left 4 Dead. It's uh, it's a, it's like a co-op uh, PVE horde simulator sort of thing with... Yeah, it's sort of a horde zombie game. And uh, it's a lot of fun, especially with friends. It's okay when you're playing alone, but with friends is really where it shines. So this is so another game that Q uh, recommended to me. So I've only... I, I'm, I'm fairly new to the game, so haven't really explored all of the content but so far uh, from what I've played it's really fun the gameplay loop is just short enough that you can have it in bite-sized sessions but at the same time it's very engaging that you'll want to have more of it it's like 
the one more turn effect but in a left 4 dead kind of situation so it's not like left 4 dead that's very long you know left 4 dead campaigns can take a whole hour sometimes uh in vermintide the the games that i've played so far done in 15 minutes so yeah if you think about it left uh vermintide 2 is just like left 4 dead except you replace the zombies with rats that's basically it I mean, they have zombie-like enemies in the Northlanders, but yeah, mostly you're whacking rats. And uh, I think what makes Vermintide 2 uh, more special to me is the fact that it's easy to pick up, right? Like, similarly to most zombie horde games, you can kind of just pick up, you just go with some friends, you all pick the kind of class that you want to play, and then you just whack the heads of some ratmen. But there's also so much depth to Vermintide. Um, the mechanical depth, the the class customization depth, because there, there are five uh, basic classes, and each of them has two other classes that you could kind of uh, pick from, which are they, which play very differently. And I think there's like three more on DLC, so it's like a total of I don't know how to do math five, 15, 18 classes right now, and they're gonna add two more, so for a total of twenty. And each one of them has their own skill trees. They have some of them have overlaps, but a lot of the time they they play very differently from one another. So, like let's say one of the classes that you can start out with, uh, the elf Carillion. She's a she starts out as a waystalker, so she's like this ranger, sort of like you know your classic fantasy ranger. She's got a bow and arrow. She's got a melee weapon, and she's really good at shooting enemies in the head with arrows. But then her second class is the handmaiden, which is a very melee centric, very mobile class. And then the third one is basically a rogue. And then so every different character has a bunch of different classes that you can try out with different weaponry and very different skill sets. So it really changes the way that you play the game. It, it, it has, it's really easy to get into, like I mentioned before, but it also has a lot of mechanical depth for people who are willing to put in the time. Like uh, some of my friends and I, I think I've personally put in about a hundred, maybe 120 hours. I've got a couple of other friends. Uh, one of my other friends is already almost at 400 hours playing the game. And while the gameplay loop is generally the same, no two runs are ever the same because it really depends on what classes you're bringing. And the game also has a, an AI director, similarly to L4D, so no two runs are ever really the same either. Sometimes, you know, you could have an easy time, but sometimes the AI director might suddenly throw, like, large monsters at you or lots of special enemies that you wouldn't really be good at dealing with. So no two games are ever the same, and yeah. Uh, so I kind of tested that part exciting. where he said it's very easy to pick up. It's basically you enter, you move with WASD, use the mouse as a camera uh, to move the camera. And then when you want to hit someone, you just press the mouse button. That's how simple the base uh, controls the game is. That's the base mechanics of the game. But as, as mentioned by Q, I, I was just scratching at the surface of how deep the game's mechanics can be. Like you can see on the video right now there are talents different kinds of talents and different kinds of abilities that you can unlock as you go along and what i really appreciate about Tide 2 is how the game scaffolding works so in video game theory i'm sorry if i'm going to delve into something like this um game scaffolding is how the developers protect you from the game's complexity so that you don't get overwhelmed at the start of the game they introduce new concepts uh, over time and then they just introduce you with the most basic at the start so with Vermintide 2 I think they really made a good job in pacing the game and giving you more skills and abilities and new toys to play with as you go along so in a way every time you boot up the game there's always something to look forward to because you know that there's something new that you're gonna discover when you play the game again and also for uh, any possible Warhammer fans there, like, I don't really know that much about the lore again, but 
this game takes place uh, right before they relaunched the Warhammer series, like with Age of Sigmar. This takes place during the end of the first world, uh, the end times there, and it, yeah, it's got a bunch of uh, a bunch of lore in it. And the characters are well written and they're interesting. And I, I have to give a shout out to the voice acting in this game, the voice acting and the dialogue writing. It's it's really good. I mean, you'll hear the same voice lines over and over the more you play. I feel like something like 60 hours and you've heard every combination of voice line there is but it's it's really good voice acting i just have to mention that yeah well carl yeah. you've been very quiet about this segment not really your cup of tea right fps I... or first person games gives you headaches yeah. unfortunately but it does look like a lot of fun with the right people it, it also has a it has full steam workshop support um you don't get to progress your character levels or anything when you're playing on the modded, uh, the modded realm, which is like the the Steam Workshop available version. But yeah, uh, I think I'm not sure, but there must be like a third person mod somewhere. Also, games on sale right now. I think for Warhammer Week until would be maybe the 14th of June here. I think right now it's 80 pesos. I can check. It's like 162 right now for the base game. Oh. Okay, so uh, actually double what fun. I said. You'd, you'd pay around 600 for most of the DLCs that matter, which are, they have DLC levels, but the thing about the DLC levels is that if your friend owns it, you can play the level, but you don't get the unlocks uh, that you get from playing the level. But you can you can play all of the levels as long as you have at least one friend who owns it and you're playing with them. So you don't really miss out if you're not that invested in the game, but you benefit from the DLCs that your friends have. So stick with those who are addicted to this game, you'll have a really great time. I feel like my brother will like this. He's a big Warhammer fan. <laughs> oh, he plays the tabletop? Uh, he plays the Total Wars ah, I see. and the, the other Warhammer is, games. Is the total, are the Total War games uh, in the 40k universe? Because this is Warhammer Fantasy. This no, the one. Total War yeah. games are in... Warhammer no, 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 no. Fantasy. Yeah, yeah, They're Warhammer not Fantasy, not 40k. Ah, so, so this one is this one is also fantasy. Total War Warhammer has Emperor Kao friends, which I really like. Because I, I see why. We share a name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, since um, what 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 platforms can you play this game in? So right now, I think it's available on PC, PS4, and Xbox One, and they haven't really announced anything about next-gen console support. But I think that might be because they're working on the new game coming up later this year, which is uh, Warhammer Darktide. Um, Warhammer, it's the Warhammer 40k universe. Similar gameplay, except instead of being melee focused, they've actually added like guns, guns proper guns. Yeah, so you've got your bolt throwers, you got your laser rifles, and your assault rifles, and things like that. So I feel like that would actually dramatically change up the gameplay. And maybe those ones will be available on next gen consoles, but I'm not sure. They haven't really announced anything, they haven't even given us a proper release date. Okay, so I was gonna ask since we're recommending this, would you rather. Uh, recommend Vermintide 2 or that new game that you were talking about earlier if someone's gonna, planning to buy either or of the game but yeah no. as you mentioned no no specifics yet on the new game right yeah no release date no nothing so I can't really recommend it because I have you know I haven't played it but this one I can uh, recommend especially because it's cheap right now yeah I think it's Warhammer week and they also have a double EXP event going right now uh, it's like June 3 to June 13 hey okay, so Perfect time to hop into it. Get some friends, play it. It's a lot of fun, I swear. So, speaking of friends and relationships, uh, I guess a lot of friends and relationships can be made in the next game that we're recommending. Cal? 
Well, Why is that the segue? <laughs> I don't know. I don't play this game. It's it's like one of the things that people talk about a lot about this game. So that's like the first thing that oh, came I, to I mind. See. <laughs> so yeah, tell me more about this game, Kyle, so that I would play this game. Okay, so my next recommend is probably something most people that know me already know I would recommend. And I actually had like a hard time choosing between two of BioWare's franchises for this. So this was either going to be a Dragon Age, but with a new Legendary Edition for the Mass Effect trilogy, I can't not recommend it today. So I chose I the Mass like, Effect trilogy. I feel like both of the games you've recommended so far are games that everybody who knows you, you've probably already recommended it to them. Oh, don't worry. Three, three of my five games today are those. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so Cal really is passionate uh, about her game. She tells everyone all about it. So yeah, exactly. If you're so friends today, with her on Facebook, you probably see a post. <laughs> <laughs> today I'm gonna talk your ears off about Mass Effect. Uh, Mass Effect, the Mass Effect trilogy, is really, I think, where Bioware has really shined for like a consistent series of games. Cause like I love, I actually love Dragon Age more because I'm more of a high fantasy kind of girl than sci-fi, but the quality in the trilogy is like pretty consistent throughout while i feel like dragon age is kind of iffy origins is the best and then the other two are kind of good but not great stuff Wait, like that is inquisition not considered great i i like it the dlcs are amazing and the characters are pretty good but it is 30 so hours it, too long <laughs> it's not is it overshadowed by the other bioware rpgs I think Inquisition is like a big success for Bioware, but the legacy it left is like not as great. I really feel it's because of the open world bloat. I, especially like looking at Andromeda, I feel like um, Bioware hasn't cracked the open world yet. They're Anthem. not. Also, yeah, <laughs> including we, Anthem. We, we, don't, we don't talk about that. <laughs> yes. So when when. I can't recommend Andromeda because it is also a big bloated open world experience. I mean, it's not as bad as most people think it is or as most people say it is for me. I mean, it was okay, but it's nowhere near as good as the trilogy. And I think the trilogy benefits from being a more linear experience. Like it's based on levels instead of like a big open world to explore. At least Mass Effect 2 and Mass Effect 3 are. ME1 has some exploration, but it's a bit janky and old now. So, despite the improvements with the Legendary Edition, ME1 is still kind of a slog. But I feel like the story and the characters are good enough to prop it up. And, of course, I really can't recommend these games separately. I feel like you should play the trilogy one after the other because your decisions carry over. And it's like really important to grow your shepherd, get to know these characters, uh, get immersed in the world building. So it's perfect timing too, because the legendary edition is out, which is uh, yes. all three of the game, all three of the original games put together. Yep, it is. Uh, it's a bit pricey because it's like full price. It's like around three k right now. Um, I mean, you're paying like one k for each game. I yeah, guess. that's that's what I told myself too. Oh, it's three games with all the DLC, and I really love this this game and these characters. And I've been wanting to replay it for like a while now, but I don't wanna like plug in my old PS3 back and then. I think I lent away my old P of the trilogy for the PS3, so I don't, I can't really replay it other than buying it for the PC. Also, there's a lot of imp the improvements to ME1 graphically is really good. I love the new UI. The old UI was kind of 
Meh. Clunky. <laughs> yeah. And I really appreciate what they did to the vehicle controls on the Mako. Uh, in ME1, you have this like moon buggy thing that you have to drive around planets with. So it, it was really janky in the old days. That was like the worst part of the trilogy. I mean, it kind of still is, despite how they improved it. But right now, it's like a much better worst part, if that makes sense. Because <laughs> this trilogy is like amazing. So I'm really hyped. I'm already in ME2 right now. These characters and the decisions you make are really, really good. Uh, there's a reason why a lot of people have ME2 as like one of their best RPGs ever. It really is very polished and actually this is my favorite sci-fi pretty, I think. I'm not really a Star Wars fan, but Mass Effect really hit it for me. <laughs> I should I haven't played the game, but I, I'm, the more you describe it, the more I think I should give it a try. Because I'm like you, I'm not really a Star Wars fan. I'm not a big fan of the whole space opera genre sort of thing. My my preferred flavor of sci-fi is the slightly more realistic, uh, more grounded sci-fi. I guess something like, uh, oh, like cyberpunk. Little... No, no, no. Well, <laughs> I, I guess, but yeah, I enjoyed cyberpunk, but not as much as I think I should have. Anyway, that's another discussion. Uh, more of likely dangerous, I guess, is more of my flavor of sci-fi. But ah. yeah. How how over the top is Mass Effect? I think that's something that I have to ask personally I, because I, I haven't played like, it. And... It is a bit over the top, but the world building is so meticulous that like they explain how people became spacefaring races. Every race has a history with the other races and they all interplay politically and that also influences your decisions, how they're going to view your shepherd based on what background you picked how you interact with the characters and stuff like that uh the sci-fi of it seems believable enough and then yeah i think by the time uh, i finished me1 i was just so hooked on the characters and the story that i like you know i i'm all in on the ride <laughs> so well, what about the game mechanics themselves like from what gameplay i've seen it's like a aside from the rpg elements it's also it's like a, a third person, person cover shooter Yep, that it is a third-person cover shooter. I think if you're like a really big on shooting mechanics and very meticulous about that stuff, I'm not sure how much mileage you would get from this game because I feel like this game shines more as an RPG. The shooting is kind of okay. It's kind of fun. There are like skills you can do. There's like biotics, which is basically the force you can like zoom people into the air and stuff and throw them back, stuff like that on a cooldown so there are like rpg skills like that there's also some like tech drones uh shields and armor stuff that go goes through shields and armor stuff like that and it's got a lot of the you know classic rpg elements yeah yeah but it's basically a cover shooter so if you're not into that your mileage I mean, may vary yeah i could always just play it like at the lowest difficulty and just go through yeah the story. yeah just go through the story that's also worthwhile but also you have to give large props to the modding community of uh, Mass Effect so this has been recommended not only by Cal but really a lot of people uh, in my circles and I did give the game a try I have the whole trilogy the original trilogy on my Steam library and I got to play only Mass Effect 1 and 2 and back then I tried playing 1 and I was like 
uh, it's so dated at that point when I started playing it. And I, I couldn't stomach how outdated the game's mechanics were and even the graphics was awful at that point. Yeah. And then, uh, so I said, oh, maybe I could just skip Mass Effect 1 because some of the people who played the whole trilogy would also recommend to skip Mass Effect 1 for some reason. I don't know why. So I played Mass Effect 2 and yeah, it had a graphical overhaul. It has better UI, it has better gameplay, combat, mechanics. But still yeah, the wasn't... Level design also. Yeah, the level design was better, but still wasn't my cup of tea at that point. But mm-hmm. I think I would have been more invested if Mass Effect 1 was so much better when I was starting to play it out so that I could get invested and then I would see the whole story story through because I would already be emotionally invested on Shepard and his or her crew at that point. So I'll really play through the entire game even if I didn't like enjoy the gameplay just for the story, right? But yeah. thankfully, uh, this is where the modding community comes in. Uh, way before Legendary Edition came in, uh, the modding community has already been hard at work in making sure that Mass Effect 1 would be more palatable to newcomers to the series. So even before uh, Bioware um, updated the graphics of Mass Effect 1 and changed its UI to adapt the ones that they used in Mass Effect 2 and 3, the modding community already did that for them. And actually, uh, while making Mass Effect Legendary Edition, Bioware talked with the modders from the community and like asked them, okay, so what 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 things do you, do you think are the best, uh, the, the most important things that we'll have to fix in making the Legendary Edition? And they actually used them as benchmarks for how they're gonna be um, how they're gonna go about the legendary edition so in a way uh, it's it's actually a wonderful process that they did that they uh, consulted with kind of like experts in fixing things the modding community in making the legendary edition and it it uh, doing that made sure uh, made them sure that they're really giving the fans what they wanted yeah I think the Legendary Edition is definitely the way to play Mass Effect now. And I really recommend it to people who wanna, you know, go down memory lane and relive the nostalgia all over again. And also, people that have been on the fringe. I feel like if you're really not into Bioware RPGs, this won't win you over because it's basically the old trilogy back in a shiny new 4K resolution, right? But if you've been... Like slightly thinking about it before that this might be it for you, you should really give the legendary edition a try. Yeah, I probably will. I, I've only the only Bioware RPG I've ever played was uh, Dragon Age Inquisition, and I enjoyed that quite a bit. And if you tell me, you, you told me earlier that it's one of the weaker ones when compared to you know Mass Effect or Origins, makes me think that I should probably try playing it. Yes, you should also play Origins, even if it's old. <laughs> Yeah, there was there were a couple of references to Origins that I didn't get at all in Inquisition. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So speaking of games uh, set in space, um, I'd like to take this as an opportunity to recommend my next game, which is Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time. So it's not exactly what you expected when I went for that uh, for that segue, right? Well, it's yep. another game that's set in space. It's a very quirky and colorful game and it's out on almost all platforms so you have the excuse not to play this game if you have the opportunity so what is this game uh since this is my second recommendation i thought about putting a two player a a game that's perfect for two players here so this game is one to four player couch co-op game 
but it's best played with just two players. So as you can see in the video, you pilot a ship, a round ship here, and what sets this game apart is if you are controlling a vehicle in other games, you move the vehicle with the control stick for example, and then you use the buttons to do stuff like fire a weapon or activate shields or whatever. But in this game, you're controlling a character in that ship. So if you want to make the if you want to make the ship move, you'll have to control your character, make them move to a station for the thrusters, and then make him activate that the thrusters through through that station. So if you want to do something in this game, you'll have to move your character from one station to another, and that that that's where the fun comes in. You'll have to coordinate well with your partner or with the other players here so that you can navigate the ship and move around and shoot all these asteroids and aliens around you and save the space bunnies that need saving the game probably the plot doesn't really matter here and you really have to coordinate well because you only can do one uh, specific function of the ship at a time so you can't move the the ship while also shooting guns you have to tell someone else to do it for you. So the coordination here has to be really tight because sometimes you might be shooting at the enemy using your weapons but you get overwhelmed so you all have to run away. But you can't because you're shooting at the enemy so you have to ask someone else to do it for you. And that's that's where the, where the fun comes in and all of the chaos comes in because um, if you don't uh, do it well, you'll just die out there and you have to be better in communicating and in coordinating which parts of the ships that you are um, supposed to man and yeah, it, it's I think games like this can really improve relationships. I, actually, it's a make or break uh, kind of thing when it I, comes I to relationships. I don't know if I agree that games like this can improve relationships. Yeah, I, I was gonna I, say, uh, I, I backtracked my, immediately. Well, it's a, it's either a make or break kind of game. Like, uh, there's a lot of. Significant than other. Yeah, I have played. Uh, we tried playing a bit of Overcooked together. One of those stressful, like one of these stressful type of coordination required games, and we just ended up fighting. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So out of the five games that I was talking about. Uh, I said earlier that four of the games I've really played extensively. This is the fifth game that I really wish I could play more. It's really hard to play alone, you know. I tried playing this with my brother, but he fell asleep on me. So I really haven't gotten back to like playing that. this game. game that you could fall asleep on. I don't know, well, man. So, my my brother is so different when supposed to play video games. Also asleep in very tense situations. But anyway, did you really recommend this for only two players? I've played a, a little of this with my siblings as well, and. It seems really difficult with only two players. Like you, you have two people who have to go back and forth between I don't I don't know how many stations to man the shields and the cannons and the mace and the the turrets and the thrust. Yeah. So actually, even if you have all four players manning the deck, there's always going to be more stations than there are players in this game. So there's always going to be a degree of challenge and coordination that you'll have to overcome. But the I think the sweet spot is two players really. Uh, if it's three or four players, it becomes too easy, uh, to my liking, and yeah, I, I think it's a great way to bond if both of you are gamers. But if if your significant other isn't a gamer, you might just end up like getting frustrated over it. But I, I, I mean, don't know. Even if even if you're both gamers, like you could still just be <laughs> yeah, because you have higher expectations, right? Why are you messing up? You're a gamer. But you might have more patience if the other person isn't a gamer. But you know, uh, mileage could vary when it comes to games like this. But 
actually what I am trying to advocate here is for play or for people to come back and play all of these great couch co-op games. Um, I recommended Lovers in a Dangerous Space Time specifically only because it's one of the lesser known titles um, of, yeah, of this we all genre. Know how, like how large, uh, how large Overcooked has yeah, become, yeah. for example. Everyone's played Overcooked. Everyone's played Mario Kart. Everyone's played Mario Party. So I just wanted to give this little game a little shout out so that more people will try Lovers in a Dangerous Space. I mean, it's so colorful. It's so wholesome. So yeah, it's it's it, it's also very cheap. So if you have extra yeah. money and you don't know what to do next date night with your significant other or next family night because you all also could play this with your family basically uh, give this game a try yeah, just because the title says lovers doesn't mean you actually have to be lovers when you play how many what's the player cap on this game how many friends can you yoink in you can like play up to four yeah oh yeah. that sounds fun it's messy so if you're brave enough, you can also play this game alone. Like if you're if you're a lover of oh, yourself, it's a, but it's a hard pass for me. Uh, I gotta describe how it plays out as a single player game. So, um, if you're playing with other characters, you don't have to worry about moving their characters, right? Because they can do it on their own with their own controllers. But if you're playing this alone, you're not exactly playing it alone. Because the game will provide you with a cat or dog companion. So there's always at least two um, people, no, not people, two beings inside the ship, manning the ship. And the way it, it works is you still retain control over your character and you can go around the ship and man the stations as you see fit. And you bark orders on the cat slash dog. Uh, you can tell it to go to this station. You can go. Uh, you can ask it to man whatever station needs to be manned. But the but the thing is, they'll use it randomly. <laughs> like they don't. Ha the AI for this game is terrible when it comes to um, the dog slash cat. I mean, it's a dog slash cat, so kind of like that's what it's supposed to do, I guess. So it's kind of random. Probably a different kind of challenge. Um, coordinating with a dog or a cat, but it's still playable even if you're just playing alone. So yeah, don't give playable, this game a pass. Maybe not like you know, not definitely not the peak of enjoyment you could get out of it. Yeah, probably not the way the developers wanted people to play it, but it's there just in case you wanted to play it on your own. Like if you fall in love with the game, it's definitely a still still passable way to do it. Oh. So yeah, that's everything I can say about this game, actually. Um, yeah, so I'll pass it over to the next game suggestion. So my next game suggestion is the Platinum Games and Square Enix title that... I, yeah, it's pretty popular, right? The uh, Nier yeah. Automata. So Nier is... Uh, it's part of a long time running series that I think started out from the, the Dragon Guard series. None of the other games, which I've, I've never played any of the other games. I've only played Automata. And it's a single-player, story-driven action RPG um, from Platinum Games. So uh, it's, it revolves around um, the story of these androids. I actually don't want to go too much into the story either. I feel like the more spoilers. spoilers. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's another one of those games similarly to Overdin where the more I say about it, I feel like I'm going to be taking more away from your experience when you try it for yourself. But yeah, it's it's a story-driven action RPG with a lot of different elements mixed in. It's at the same time of it being like a hack and slash third-person sort of uh, 
you know, Platinum games. We've all come to know Platinum games for their amazingly fluid third-person combat. It's also got bullet hell sections. It's got, like, space impact in it. Uh, and, yeah, it's got these flight, flight sections and platforming and all, all sorts of different things mixed up. The gameplay is very varied in uh, the way that it handles it in different sections. But my, my main, I think the main draw point really for Nier Automata is the story of the game, the writing, the pacing, the, the worlds that you're exploring, the environments and the characters are all really well crafted and it just creates this really nice cohesive story um, that's, yeah, it's best enjoyed playing it, not watching it, I think. Uh, it, it deals with some pretty heavy themes about humanity and uh, the meaning of life. It gets kind of philosophical in that sort of sense and it's not really subtle about it. And uh, yeah, it's... I don't really know what... Well, you can actually say a lot about the gameplay just by looking at the video. It's very varied if, 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 if you've been paying attention. It has, as you mentioned, bullet hell segments that is both in 2D and 3D. And you also have these action segments that can also be played out in 2D and 3D. So it's really a mixed bag of gameplay. But I don't think it's kind of like... Uh, some games have mixed gameplay but like not very well interwoven together. Here I think um, the game really feels cohesive even if it switches from kind of one genre to another. And... Yeah, and I think on top of that, the mechanics meld really well with the themes and the story itself. I Again, I really can't go into too much into detail with it, but a lot of the themes play on, you know, the reality of uh, of humanity and of, the, of life and death. And the game, you only really finish the game. It has 26 different endings, uh, one for each letter of the alphabet, I think. And you only really finish the game after you've played through it three times. Every subsequent playthrough, has something dramatically different about it and the way that they handle the story and you start to see lots of different perspectives pointing at the same story and you have a very different sense of uh the same events happening the second time it unfolds and the third time it unfolds so uh between you two i think only cal has also played near yeah i finished it once oh so you haven't <laughs> actually finished this <laughs> yeah i know i was only borrowing it from a friend but uh, this is also one of those emotionally exhausting games but in the best way it's but it's really it's good. long actually like i think my yeah. first my first playthrough of not the entire game just like my first playthrough of the three that you need to actually finish the whole game uh took me about so something a little a little over 20 hours and then it would be like another 20 15 to 20 hours for the second one and something like that for the third one. But of course I was doing side quests and I was grinding levels and uh, um, acquiring currency and parts to customize some aspects of the combat. Which isn't really necessary, but I think overall the game is something like a 50 hour runtime. Yeah. For uh, all of the three major endings. Most of the other endings are kind of just joke endings where you die or something strange just happens and the game just ends. I also really like the gameplay of this one, the fighting, because it's fast-paced, but you can't just button mash your way through, otherwise you'll die. I like I like more like hack-and-slash systems like this, compared to like the slower, more methodical stuff. Yeah, it's very, um, you know, it's really fluid, as we've come to expect from uh, Platinum Games. The animations, they, they flow well together and makes the combat pacing fast, and it's really nice, but at the same time, you know, there's, there's weight to your strikes. And 
yeah, because it jumps constantly between like this third person uh, action hack and slash sort of thing into the, like the space combat and sometimes side scrolling platforming sort of thing. Yeah, so it's it's really unique in that aspect uh, that every time you play the experience and because of the differences of each playthrough, it it feels kind of fresh and new every time. So yeah. Uh... You already outed me for not having played this game yet, but I swear I'm going to play this someday. Um, you but you got your hands on a PS5, right? So yeah, I just got my hands on a PS5, so I'm gonna get to play this game someday, one of these days, hopefully. But yeah, um, I don't think I agree that you shouldn't be spoiling the game because I've already spoiled myself to death. Or rather, uh, you can choose not to spoil yourself or you spoil yourself uh, as much as you want. But I don't think it takes anything away from. The game's narrative because um, I've already you know this game is the sort of game that a lot of youtubers talk about so uh, I've already watched a lot of videos talking about the themes and the story of the game and how amazing it is and it only made me want to play the game more uh, so it I, I don't think uh, knowing more about the game really takes anything away from it because it's one of those games that hearing about it is different from actually experiencing it and um, sometimes going into something with a little bit of insight in, into what you're getting into could be a good thing in games like this because sometimes you might not realize like a lot of things will just fly over your head because you didn't know what to look for but if you're informed already in uh, when going into a game like Nier Automata you'd be able to spot all of the things in just your first playthrough and I think it's a different kind of experience from playing it like totally blind but I think it doesn't really take a lot away from the game's experience. Uh, I feel like some of the, the more major sorry spoilers would definitely be too much to give away. But the, the basic premise of it is would be fine. I don't I actually don't think I've mentioned it yet. So yeah, the, the basic premise of it is that you play as these androids, uh, 2B and uh, her uh, 9S, and um, you're caught in this constant war. Uh, you're, oh, this proxy war. Uh, you, you work for humanity, who's living on the moon, and you're fighting against uh, these machine life forms, which are aliens that have been inhabiting Earth for a long time. And basically, you're just trying to put a stop to the war, get rid of the machine life forms so that humanity can make their way back. And Nier Automata leans very heavily on that theme, on those themes of like humanity and war and loss. And it, it's pretty dark in, the, in its macro themes, but a lot of the gameplay and the dialogue, especially coming from the the machine life forms, the aliens can be pretty light, and it's got some really funny moments as well. Definitely does. I feel just... like you haven't talked about like a super important aspect of this game as well. Uh, you should really gush about the music too. <laughs> I mean, well, I was gonna get to that at some point. I just wasn't sure. I mean, of course, I was gonna talk about. It. You know, the Nier Automata soundtrack is my most played album on Spotify of 2020. I. My most played song was from Devil May Cry, but near the near album was my most played one. I think I streamed the entire album uh, more than like almost 200 times. I think my Spotify thing showed me last year. It's amazing. Sure. And uh, I haven't even played the other games, but I also listened to the soundtracks of those ones. And they're also really, really good. So yeah, we're very big on music and sound design here uh, in Off Cooldown. Uh, I too have heard of Nier Automata's music. Actually, uh, when I was in high school, I was listening to the original Nier soundtrack way before. I I've never even played the game. So I, I think I'm also going to be picking up Nier Replicant sometime soon. But I've been playing the music of the original Nier 
when I was in high school because it was beautiful even way back then. And speaking of most played soundtracks, uh, in 2020 also my most played album in SoundCloud was the OST of Disco Elysium because uh, it really gives you the feels. So it, you can't find them in Spotify, that's why they're in SoundCloud. And yeah, we're very big music and sound design nuts here. Yeah, so big props to, well, basically most of the games that we've mentioned so far have pretty stellar soundtracks, I think. That's true. Yeah, give Nier Automata a try. Um, great atmosphere, good storytelling. It's the gameplay is exciting, good. fast gameplay, yeah. And it's I, I think overall it's a pretty unique experience that I don't think I've had from many other AAA titles because, you know, this is a pretty big title. Like, they're not really afraid to have these sort of uh, more wacky and uh, experimental gameplay uh, aspects. Yeah, yeah, so give Nier Automata a try. It's on every console except for the Switch. I don't think you could port this game yeah, to the I Switch. I don't think you can port this game to the Switch. There's rumors about Replicant going to the Switch though, but those are unfounded I mean, like, so far. Know, if, if you have a PS4 or a PS5, I would actually suggest that you run uh, you play it on that because the PC versions of this game have a lot of optimization issues right now. I played it on PC and I had to use a third-party mod to actually fix my frame rate. Like I, I have a I have a pretty mid-range PC, can run most games at 60 FPS, but before I used the mods, I couldn't run near properly. Yeah, so big shout out to the modding community again for saving Thank you, broken mod. games. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for fixing what the the, the ports couldn't. Yeah, so. so onward to our next game, it's a, uh, uh, one of oh. Cal's recommendations and uh, if you've been friends with her long enough, she might have even gifted you the game. Yeah. She, yeah. She, how often do you, I know you do a giveaway of this like what, every year, every yes. few months? Every I time it's on sale? <laughs> every time it's on sale for low enough. So that's about twice a year. I've given this away 12 times now. <laughs> that's, wow, 12 that's how times. much I love this game. <laughs> Yeah. Very, so my next very generous run. friend. Yeah. yeah. The game is Sleeping Dogs. I don't know how well known this game is because I feel like it, it doesn't get on a lot of lists, and more people, of course, know the contemporaries, which are extremely huge, Yakuza and GTA. But Sleeping Dogs is like a one-off uh, game that's sort of like both Yakuza and GTA uh, in a way that it's set in Hong Kong and the story is more serious than either of the two games that it usually gets compared to so you're an undercover cop called Wei Shen and you're asked to go undercover to bring down the triads which is the organized crime uh, organizations in Hong Kong so it's a very involved story and you eventually get to know your triad bros the Water Street Boys and walk a fine line between being law-abiding and like getting too embroiled into the undercover work so it's a lot of questions about morality and how far are you willing to go for a job Stuff like that. It's also a very vibrant picture of Hong Kong. I've actually I planned like my Hong Kong trip based on this game. <laughs> Is it I... an accurate like representation yeah. of Hong Kong? It's it feels similar to Hong Kong. The geographics of it is 
generally the same, but there's uh, some changes. Uh, so yeah, but I mean, you, you plan the trip around it, right? So <laughs> I plan the trip around it generally. So like, I wanted to visit the night markets, and then it's not like one to one because of course the names of the places are different. There's also like the peak, which I Victoria went to peak. in real life. Yeah, it's called yeah, something else in the game. It's beautiful. You can see like the whole city, and of course, you know, I can't really go into the underground parts. <laughs> That's sketchy, but in the game you definitely can. Uh, it definitely feel the night market in this game definitely feels a lot like the night market IRL. All the sights and the sounds, you can almost smell it. <laughs> the smell of dim sum. Uh, also, this game is a big recommend for me, and especially because I'm into like Hong Kong action movies, so kung fu movies. There's a lot of references to them in this game from like DLC costumes and weapons and stuff but there's also a lot of moves that actually you can see here in the trailer that come from you know old kung fu movie classics like there's a there's a there's references you... to a lot of Wuxia films. I can see it from the trailer actually. Yeah, yeah, there you can equip like a drunken master attire and then your moveset completely changes into Drunken Master. Uh, there's also... The combat in this game is a lot like Arkham. Uh, the Batman Arkham game. So it's like more arcade melee combat. Like brawler, sort of. Yeah. So it's a little more like Yakuza in that way. But it's also like GTA because this is an open world and you can drive around everywhere. So... Also, one of the things I really like about this game are the car chases. This is like the best car chases in video games that I've ever played. Because you can actually, aside from like, usually you can like drive around and chase the other guy's car, right? And then you just shoot at them from outside the window. In this game, you can get out of your car while it's moving and then jump onto the roof of the other guy's car. And then yoink him out of the driver's seat and then go in and sit so in the car. You'd be like a real bona fide action superstar. Exactly. Right? That's it's really amazing. Well. <laughs> F funny, yeah. funny of you to to mention that because one of the things that turned me off from this game is the fact that you have to drive the left side. It really messed oh, me up. I, mean, I keep on crashing on the other cars because I'm used to driving the right. And I was like, it's Hong Kong, <laughs> though. That, that sounds like a you problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really it's really disorienting, and like I keep on crashing on other cars because they go the wrong way. I mean, <laughs> everyone goes the wrong way in this game. But anyway, yeah, it's one of the highlights of the game. I, I played through one of those sequences where you get to jump off your car to the other person's car. And it's really exhilarating. It's it's one kind of experience that I think very few games could imitate. Yeah, I don't know why GTA doesn't let you jump onto the other guy's car yet. I mean, please. Do they have some, they, I think they have something like that in the GTA 5, although it's not actually a mechanic. Yeah, they're scripted the events, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sleeping Dogs, I've played a bit of it as well. I haven't actually finished it, but what I have played of it, it's, it's good. The driving feels good. The shooting, not the best. There's... Yeah, it's not really a yeah. shooter. I the usually brawling is pretty nice, though. Gun. Yeah, the brawling is fun. It's fast, and you get to use the environment in your attacks, like, you know, in Kung Fu movies. Like, if there's uh, an aquarium on the wall, you can push your enemy onto it and then it breaks the glass and all the water comes out and then you do a shit ton more damage yeah but i would also recommend that you play it on a controller because I, I tried playing on mouse and keyboard and i did not have the best mileage i feel like it was made really with the controller in mind 
for both the movement and because of the amount of uh, buttons you're going to be pressing during the brawling. Yeah, I've only played this on console, so I can't. I don't know. I mean, the mouse and keyboard that. controls are there, uh, and then I think they have uh, button remapping support and prompt, button prompts and everything. But I really feel like this is one of those experiences that's probably best played on controller. Also, I also have to just mention that now it's the same thing for Nier Automata as well. Best played on controller. I feel like most action games tend to be better yeah, on controller but some of them i don't know i feel like some of them are okay even if they're not on controller like i've played i don't know 800 hours of monster hunter world on mouse and keyboard oh wow i played on i attached How my controller when you? i played that <laughs> you get used to it after a while i see wow so yeah that's sleeping dogs it's great the story is gritty it has serious moments it has a lot of plot twists uh, I really grew to care about the characters in this game. I think this is one of the few... I've only had nine games that made me cry and this is one of them. Uh, yeah, I love it. It's really simple, it's really cheap, and it's easy to get into. I feel like if you're into organized crime stories at all, this is Maybe one you should, you should right now. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna check real quick. Is this on sale? It's it almost on sale always last. on sale, actually. No, but yeah, if, if, if it's on sale right now... Oh, no, it's not on sale right now. It's it's 760 pesos for the definitive edition right now. Yeah. I think it goes down to like what? 400, 300? One, really? Oh, well, it was 160 last week. That's why so I we gave it away. We just have to wait for another sale and then you guys can go buy it. And there's also, I think it's our third Square Enix game that we've recommended so oh, far. Yeah. Actually. We've been recommending yeah. a lot of Square Enix games. Yeah, but so I still wish Square Enix, Square Enix needs to realize this game deserves a sequel. Please, please play Sleeping Dogs so that, you know, Square Enix gets one step closer to realizing we want another one. I mean, I guess it also comes down to like what projects United Front has been up to as well. Oh, they've, they've already closed down, unfortunately. Oh, so oh, there's your yeah. answer, Ikal. Nice. <laughs> oh, I can revive the IP. The IP is still owned by Square. <laughs> Please. So if, in case anyone from Square Enix is listening, uh, yeah, revive Sleeping Dogs. Yeah, we'd love yeah. to see Sleeping Dogs too. Yeah, I've been trying to like play Yakuza in hopes that it fills the sleeping dog's hole in my gaming library, but it's Yakuza is great, but it's not sleeping it's dogs. Really, I feel like it's on a really different wavelength than sleeping yeah. dogs. It's like really it, wacky and the I mean yep. sleeping dogs is over the top but in a very different way. Yeah. Except maybe the DLCs. The DLCs <laughs> the, the DLCs are really wacky. But yeah, it's different. Uh, Yakuza is great, but it's not the same. You also don't drive around and you know jump onto other people's cars in Yakuza. So you don't get to live the uh, Hong Kong uh, action movie, Hong Kong action or... movie. Yeah. Yeah. But you can play pachinko and arcade games. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, just off tangent. <laughs> we can also do a podcast on Yakuza. I wouldn't mind. But yeah, Sleeping Dogs is my my favorite game of this type. Speaking of favorite so, games, um, yeah, uh, this the Sleeping Dog sorry is out on which platforms? Oh, it's available on last gen PlayStation and Xbox. So that's PS4 and PS3. This is the the definitive edition because you should only get the definitive edition. <laughs> so last on... gen and PC. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of 
favorite games. Um, I'll be taking over and we'll be talking about one of my favorite games of all time. And it's Sid Meier's Civilization VI. Uh, so I'm using footage here from the Gathering Storm DLC. But there's been a lot of additions to Civ VI since the release of this latest expansion. That this game's actually so fleshed out right now. Um, a lot of fans of Sid Meier's Civilization VI got turned off by the game. I mean, the long-term fans of Civ uh, series were turned off by Civ 6 because of the very cartoonish graphics and overly simplified gameplay. But over the course of the past few years, thanks to the new expansions and the new DLCs that came in, uh, they were able to flesh out Civ 6 into something much more complex, uh, in my opinion, to some of the older games. But Wait, people people consider Civ 6 to be overly simplified. Yes, people yeah. <laughs> people who play Civ uh -huh. say that Civ 6 is simplified. But that's exactly why I recommend 6 over the other games. Uh, especially if you haven't played or touched any strategy games before. So a little bit of background. Uh, Sid Meier's Civilization 6 is part of the 4X strategy game genre. Actually, it's the granddaddy of all 4X strategy game genre. So in games like this, you found a civilization... Uh, civilization and you start off with just one city and then you can do whatever you want you can build up your civilization's culture you can build a military dominant culture or you can build up a scientific focused uh, civilization and there are different ways to win the game like you can be the first civilization to send the man a man in space or the first civilization to like uh, homogeneously uh, overtake everyone else's culture or you can just straight up dominate everyone and conquer all of their cities and win but what i like about civilization 6 is it's the most noob friendly game out of the whole series so games complex games like this really has a very steep learning curve and it turns off a lot of people because they don't really just have the time to study a new game like this but Civ 6 I feel like it's more forgiving compared to the older games especially if you're just playing the base game without the expansions and the DLCs it also hand holds you more than the other games so it tells you off when you're doing something wrong or if it gives you a lot of useful tips on how to play the game more efficiently so it really um, the term again scaffolding it gives you a lot of scaffolding in learning the game and mastering the game over time and I think Civ 6 is also the most feature heavy and most diverse kind of uh, game civilization game throughout the series because over the course of its DLCs and expansions it touched on a lot of things that the other civilization games haven't you have like the secret societies mode where you get to uh, play as vampires or you can even add zombies to the game so it really diverges a lot and a lot of these new features are totally optional so if you're an old Civ fan and you don't like these uh, things that deviate from history you can opt not to include them but for those who are wanting a more diverse taste of strategy games you can go ahead and play Civ 6 and get all of the expansions and DLCs but Apart from that, what I really appreciate uh, from playing Civ as uh, I grew up, uh, I first played Civilization 3 when I was a kid and I've been playing the series ever since, is that it's a good tool to introduce world history and different kinds of culture to children. So like I saw a 
picture like a couple of weeks uh, weeks ago where Mark Zuckerberg is watching his daughter play Civ. So you, you just get an idea of uh, the appeal of this game. It can be played by all ages and if you start them early, you can develop a love for history and for culture and for picking the curiosity of kids using Civ. So it even has its own encyclopedia built inside it. So they can start their discovery of the world around them through that Civilopedia is what they call it in the game. And then it could even prompt them to Google these things uh, outside of the game and learn more about the world around them just because of a game. I remember specifically, I knew about Mao Zedong even before I went into grade school because of Civ 3. Because in Civ 3, the leader for the Chinese civilization was Mao Zedong. And I knew all about him. I knew about Hammurabi and Cyrus the Great and all of these world leaders even before I went to school. So it's a good tool for education as well for world history and cultures and um, you know the gist. So aside from Civ 6, a lot of other games do this as well. The older Assassin's Creed games do this perfectly, although the more recent ones aren't as uh, historically accurate anymore. Um, yeah, do you have any experience in games teaching you uh, to be more curious and to learn more about the world around you? Oh, definitely. Uh, I feel I had the same experience as you did, like reading through the codex of a game. For That's what I did for Age of Empires 2 and Age of Mythology. So when I was a ch child, like I spent some summers with my auntie and she had Age of Mythology on her PC. So I tried playing it around with it and then eventually I ended up reading the whole codex. So I got really into like Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology. I knew all about that. Like we never really discussed that in school because, you know, we don't really discuss mythology a lot. So I learned a lot about that from just video games. I, I have similar mileage, but in a very different way. Um, I think it was late into grade school or very early into high school when I first got my hands on Gary's mod. And oh, Gary's like mod. Time, like Minecraft, right? And I actually learned how to do like logic gates to play around with some of the systems in the game. So like redstoning in Minecraft and uh, Gary's mod had this mod called Wire Mod, which was basically, you know, uh, I guess actual... Uh, working with circuitry and I learned that entirely just so that you know I could I wanted to make my own cars in Gary's mod I wanted to make my own uh, redstone repeaters in Minecraft I wanted to make automatic farms and hidden stairs in Minecraft so I learned all about that stuff because I wanted to play these games I wanted to make things in those games uh, for those of you who weren't uh, so familiar Gary's mod is actually uh, like a modded version of Team Fortress 2 if I'm not mistaken but it's it's been drastically it it's it runs on the source engine, but it's it's so drastically different now that it's basically just a sandbox where you're given the tools available in the source engine plus those again shout out to the modding community created by modders and you can kind of do whatever you want with it. Uh, some of the earliest if if you're familiar with like prop hunt, that's kind of kind of game where people are disguised as props in the world and then you have to hunt them down. That's partly from Gary's mod where it got popular. Outside from uh, Counter Strike, I think. Anyway, back to civilization. Like. Yeah, so a lot of games really do have a good effect on children if like, uh, they were exposed to them in healthy amounts, of course. So if you're a parent and you have a growing child, I know one person who has a grade schooler right now who, who, she, lets, uh, who she lets play 
Civilization 6 all the time and that kid's growing to be a very curious and very knowledgeable child at the very least you know because you also have to teach your children what to do with that knowledge eventually but uh, again we're very big music nuts here in this channel so i would also like to give a shout out to the music of civilization 6 uh, it's composed by the legendary composer christopher thin thin christopher thin yeah christopher thin and he makes really good music for civilization uh, very good renditions of folk songs and cultural music from the different civilizations featured in this game and it really puts you in a calming vibe when you play this game actually this game if i know that i have like six straight hours of free time that i can use to play a video game civilization games are usually my go-to games for those kinds of scenarios it's a really complex game but it puts you in a really calming state when you play it uh, at a leisurely pace and I also feel like uh, members of the tabletop gaming community who are into uh, grand, I'm not grand strategy, but big strategy games with lots of moving pieces should definitely also give Civilization a try. I haven't played much of it myself, but I know a bunch of people who are really into, you know, that those sort of complex tabletop games. And I feel like they could definitely appreciate Civilization because it's quite similar in that regard. It definitely is, I think. I feel like... Civ 6 is also unique in a way compared to the other Civs and compared to other games, grand strategy games of its ilk. Uh, especially when you add the Gathering Storm DLC because it really takes care of the endgame. I feel like most grand strategy games kind of are a slog in the endgame because you're like just wiping up the territories and waiting for things to, you know, give you the win. Uh, in with the gathering storm it adds like a lot of new mechanics that switch things up so like there's global warming and then eventually like some rivers eat up tiles or the coast becomes uh eats up the land area so you might lose a coastal city stuff like that so it kind of changes the end game and keeps it fresh you know because most grand strategy games kind of feel really compelling in the beginning and then the mid game is like where all the action happens and then by the end game you're just pressing one turn because you already know what's gonna happen and just waiting for it so that's really good when it comes to Civ 6. Alright so off to a bit of a simpler game is my next recommendation which is A Hat in Time. Uh, a Hat in Time is a simple, well not really simple but it's a uh, it's a platformer game created by Gears for Breakfast. Um, I grew up on quite a few platformers. First game, I already mentioned before, my first game was like Super Mario Land, and then I played Spyro. Uh, there was a bit of Ratchet and Clank and Sly Cooper. I, I never touched the uh, N64 games because I didn't have one, but I hear this game mostly compared to uh, Super Mario on the N64. It's a really solid, like, cutesy, very bright platformer uh, where you play as this, I guess she's a bit of an alien called Hat Kid. And uh, she's got a time machine that broke and all the time fragments scattered across different worlds and now she has to go retrieve them. The gameplay loop itself is really just um, almost pure platforming with a couple of uh, very interesting breaks in those through the, through the boss battles that are scattered throughout the different levels. The combat is simple enough. It's usually just bonking enemies on the head or whacking them a few times, but the boss battles have some really interesting mechanics throughout uh, that involve like obstacles or having to attack the boss in a certain way. So the first thing I probably have to talk about with platformers is how does it feel? 
and hat and time it feels great it's got just the right amount of like floatiness with good control in the air so that your movements feel precise enough you're given a, a good enough move set that you can mess around with including like wall running wall jumping you can do a mid-air dash uh grab onto ledges and you're also given a whole host of uh, patches, as they're called in the game, which give you access to various power-ups like a scooter that lets you move faster or maybe when you use the mid-air dash and you hit a wall, it doesn't stop you anymore. And you also have different hats. Now, being called a hat in time, the hats augment your abilities greatly. Uh, there are certain, lots of different hats that you unlock throughout the course of the game. Can give you anything from like a simple speed hat which allows you to sprint all the way down to a hat that lets you stop time momentarily so you can get onto moving platforms or dodge a certain group of enemies and things like that so it's overall a very solid platformer and the the next thing i should probably talk about is the stage design um it's most of the stages are rather non-linear um meaning that there's a lot of space for you for, for you to explore and to discover like different secrets um, some stages more than others, but there's always there's almost usually yeah, there's usually more than one way to approach uh, a level to get to the different parts of it, and every level feels and looks really varied and has a different soundtrack. You go everywhere from like uh, the one that we're seeing in the trailer here, which is uh, it's called Mafia City, and it's sort of like this uh, coastal sort of island planet. And uh, from there, you go on to like a movie set where you have to play these sort of pseudo stealth espionage. There's even uh, a section in the game where it's it, one of the sections of the game is kind of a horror type uh, where you're just constantly hiding from a certain monster. And thankfully, that part was skippable because I was actually terrified playing it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty bite sized game. I think I finished all of the game, including the DLCs, in what was less than 12 hours. But it was long enough, and it, well, no, actually, no. My playtime says it's been 22 hours. I played this game for about 22 hours, and I finished pretty much all the content it has to offer. And I enjoyed every moment of it. Uh, there was enough variance between the power-ups and the levels, and what you had to do with the mechanics in each of the levels that it really kept me going and playing the game. And on top of that, uh, Hat and Time has, again, full workshop support, so you can play all sorts of user-generated levels. Uh, the ones that are created, they, they could be anything from like story levels to time trial levels where you show you everyone's trying to compete for the best time. Also, isn't this game support two player gameplay? Yeah, uh, there is a co op mode that I haven't tried yet, but there is a co op mode that we're up to you and another friend can play, and I'm not sure if it supports Steam Remote Play or not. So Actually, I can't really say much about the multiplayer mode because I haven't tried it, but it is available on. Sorry? Yeah, I, I was just gonna say that we probably should try it soon because I've been meaning to play this game for a while. Would you recommend me to play the single player aspect first before we go into co-op or can we just jump straight into co-op in a hat in time? The single player and the co-op modes are the same level so I feel like you can just hop straight into co-op. I don't know how much of it actually changes in co-op mode because I haven't tried it. But seeing how much fun it is in single player, I don't think it's gonna be any less fun playing with a friend if anything it's going to be a bit more chaotic probably a lot more fun yeah because um uh, i'm not really that big into platformers but it's always a welcome change of pace in the games that i play you know it's a good palate cleanser when i've already played too many dark games you know platformers were really big in the early days of the playstation and i've also played my own share of uh, playstation one era 
platformer classics like Spyro, you have uh, Crash Bandicoot. I even remember uh, playing a Lilo and Stitch platformer in the PlayStation One and uh, Toy Story. So there, there, I really played a lot of platformers, but I've never really become like a big fan of it. But it's always a welcome game. Like if you tell me that. All I can play from now on would be platformers, even if it's not my favorite genre. I really wouldn't mind. It's the kind of genre that's full of very wholesome kind of games that you really can't hate so much. Um, the the most recent game that I've played uh, of the same vein is uh, Super Mario Odyssey on the Switch, and it's a whole different ball game when it comes to platformers. Because uh, I was also gonna comment earlier that. For 22 hours in a platforming game, you're actually really lucky to have that much content in a single platforming game because they tend to be short and sweet. So yeah, I, w- I was gonna say that I really look forward to trying out this game sometime. Yeah, maybe we could uh, we could actually stream our two-player gameplay on this one. We'll see. Oh, let's play. And speaking of which, so if you want to play with a friend, it's available on uh, Mac. For some reason, PC, Switch, PS4, and Xbox One. So, if you own any of those, I don't think they have any cross-platform support. But you know, if if you and a friend own both own that, uh, at least one of those consoles, you can play it together. Yeah. So, Carl, do you have any experience with platformers? I used to play. Uh, I grew up on PC, so I think the closest experience I would have to platformers as a child is like. Tomb Raider Three. Oh, that's a whole is... different kind of platform. Yeah, I think that's a very different. Kind <laughs> yeah, of I, I didn't really grow up on like games like this, like Super Mario or Crash or Jack. So I don't have like the nostalgia for them. But they do, they do look like pretty fun and the like art style is adorable. Even without the nostalgia for platformer games, there's still definitely something for you to appreciate in this kind of game. Because I, I don't think that it's a solid game only because of its because of the nostalgia factor. Without that in mind, I still think like I, I haven't actually played a lot of the games that people relate this to, which would be like uh, Banjo Kazooie or like uh, Mario on the N64, like I mentioned. But I just think it's a really good game in terms of platforming, and just a really fun experience overall. It's varied enough to keep you interested for as long as it needs to, and it's challenging. It's just challenging enough that. It's not too easy to clear, but it's also not frustrating to play at all. Unless you're going for time trials, which would get pretty frustrating. <laughs> well, speaking of challenges, I think the next game that we're gonna recommend you will present a wholly different kind of challenge. So, yeah, if you could please explain okay. to us what kind of challenges we can face in this game, Cal. So, the next game. Actually, my next two games are games that I don't really talk about a whole lot, mostly because I feel like they're more niche. So the next game I'm gonna recommend is called RimWorld. It's basically a colony simulator where there's like a bunch of different start settings, but basically you build up a colony in a world, like in a Rim World, in a planet that isn't inhabited yet, far away from civilization. So it's part survival, part uh, simulator, part city builder, if you want to call it that. So basically, you're in charge of your colonists and feeding them, creating a home for them, making sure that they have all they need to survive a happy and healthy life. 
and then you know survive raids make sure you don't get killed off it's really quite the most fleshed out com- colony sim i played uh i think the biggest uh drawback to this game would probably be the graphics if you're not into this art style because it's like very simple 2d uh, it's also a bit of a learning curve. Definitely, when I started playing this game, I, I got wiped out uh, like a fair number of times because I couldn't figure out like how how to build things to make sure that everyone stays alive. And then the first raid was kind of oh my god, I'm everyone's dying. Sometimes you get wiped out by a sickness. So yeah, it's a lot of fun, if, especially if you like micromanaging games. Uh, this is my representative to the simulator genre because they, they were like quite a few other games that i would like to recommend from simulators but i feel like RimWorld is one of the most flesh out ones especially because of the modding community so shout out to the modding community again i play this game with like 100 mods every wow. time <laughs> yeah it's like my most modded game there are so it- many mods is it one of those games where you need the mods to actually enjoy it? Or is it just uh, like a nice add-on on the side to change things up? It's a nice add-on. I, I played like 30 plus hours of this game without any mods. And then I like got super sucked into it and lost a lot of sleep. Eventually, I added so many mods like stuff that adds indoor plumbing or stuff that adds more diseases, more types of food, more types of materials to work with. More There's another one armor. of those games where... Like, I look at it, and it looks like it's a lot of fun, if only it weren't so stressful for me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually... It is a bit stressful, yes. Actually, you also mentioned about the graphics of this game. It's very simple, but also it's very stylistic and striking. Uh, it actually yeah. reminds me of another game. I'm not sure if it's related, but uh, I'm not sure if you played Prison Architect. Yeah, oh, yeah it does look like that. It does look very similar to that. Oh, I feel it- like... The uh, the gameplay varies because the I've tried playing a bit of Prison Architect and expected it to be like RimWorld, but the controls for building things are very different. So I got like, oh, it's not the same. So I got like kind of yoinked out of the experience. So I haven't returned to Prison Architect yet. Maybe one day I'll come back. <laughs> uh, so it's probably made by a different set of developers. It just so happens that they look the same. Yeah, they look quite similar. I mean, the the art style, an art style like this would be simple enough to develop since it's not really the, you know, it's not really the main focus of the game since you're mm-hmm. looking at the strategy mostly. Yeah. Actually, this also, game is a. Uh... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Actually, looking at the game, it's some sort of game that you can min max. It feels like it's a game that you can, um, you can optimize to the fullest. Is it that kind of game? You definitely can play it like that. Like my brother does like super elaborate pre-planned setups for his colony and then he builds it up over the course of his gameplay, but I kind of do it more freeform and I like to, you know, see what happens when I just build it out. Like his grand strategy is usually to build on like a hillside so that enemies can only go in from one direction, stuff like that. I usually play a bit more freeform than that. It's quite a lot of fun depending on how you want to play it. Some people really do go into the optimization, like the room layout, so that their workers can walk the shortest yeah. amount of time. As much as of, as much as I enjoy optimization, these kinds of games I can't actually find myself uh, optimizing in. I find that I optimize a lot better in uh, when it comes to like stats and in action RPGs, that sort of thing, where 
you kind of just set up your optimizations beforehand to make sure that you're doing the optimal thing and then you kind of have to execute it for like for example monster hunter world the armor skills or path of exiles uh build setups beforehand but i don't think i do very good with uh, optimizations on grand strategy or just strategy games in general especially with all of the i, I hear rimworld has a lot of rng and like you're yeah. just suddenly gonna get messed up by some random alien attack or maybe a disease or natural disaster and I, I don't know how to optimize around that that's why i think the game's gonna be really stressful to play <laughs> is it actually that stressful or am i do i just have like this this wrong image of what rimworld's like you can actually set it uh the difficulty settings to how much rng is going to cause chaos in your your colony so i usually set it to uh pretty low so that I can like build up my base. Usually I play these games to like build and watch things grow, right? So I I like to be able to build up my base instead of it being like a really gritty survival game where I'm like three dudes naked with no weapons and then suddenly we're being attacked. <laughs> so, some people are into that. It's it's also a challenge in itself, but I really like the building aspect, so I usually don't play on difficulties that high. Yes, actually you can choose your poison in this game. Choose what will kill yeah. you. Yeah, basically. It's really fun. I've lost a lot of nights to this game. So where can I play this game if I wanted to? Uh, this game is available on PC and Mac. Unfortunately, not for consoles, but I kind of understand why. I can't imagine. I don't think it would be very easy to play so a game like this on a controller. It's already yeah, challenging yeah. as it is without the controller. Also, you wouldn't get mods. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So speaking of difficult games, yes, uh, New Tears next recommendation is one of those games. So speaking of difficult games with lots of RNG, I will introduce you to Darkest Dungeon. It's a Lovecraftian roguelike dungeon crawler game where you get to control a party of four characters, each with their own abilities, and more than just abilities is what makes them unique actually. Uh, you fight eldritch horrors, you can already see it how the game looks like from the trailer that we're looking at it's very dark and moody and very dirty looking and that's all part yeah, of like the appeal really dark like a really dark dungeon really darkest really dungeons, darkest even. dungeon yeah exactly so what makes this game special compared to other uh, dungeon crawler games is you just don't manage your party's health or rather your physical health of your party because uh, as you can see there's like two health bars uh, under the characters there. The red portion of the health bars is your physical health. So the amount of damage that your characters can take. But you also have to take care of their mental and their spiritual health. Because um, what what sets this apart is I think Darkest Dungeon really gets what Lovecraftian horror is supposed to be. A lot of other Lovecraftian horror adaptations forget the part where uh, Lovecraftian horror is all about how people delve into madness and how they become affected by the horrors that they see. A lot of Lovecraftian horror that you see are all about the tentacles and Cthulhu and all of the monsters. They don't explore enough of the psychological effect the horrors have on humans. And in this game, yeah. you have very human characters. They get affected by the monsters you see. They get affected when their comrades die in battle. They get affected if the opponent gets a critical hit. They get really stressed. They get paranoid. They develop diseases both physically and mentally. You know, you can have um, characters here who develop delirium and also sepsis and AIDS. You get all of all the 
sort of um, realism kind of in this game. Like if you're fighting enemies in a dungeon that's very grimy and dirty, you expect to catch some diseases here and there, and you get really terrified as well. So inside the battle, you don't have you you don't only have your character's health to manage. You also have to manage their mental health and really have to think about how they will survive on onslaught in more ways than just one and even if you survive the dungeons afterwards some of your characters may be you know permanently damaged in the inside and they would refuse to come back or to join your parties anymore so sometimes you have a very well-developed character but they'll start fearing the dungeons and they'll start refusing to come to your adventures so there's that kind of aspect in this game and um, yeah, it's very good in telling a true Lovecraftian horror story. Yeah, I think it, uh, I haven't played much of Darkest Dungeon again, which has been a bit of a recurring theme from the games that you've recommended. But I am a big fan of uh, Lovecraftian and cosmic horror. And I think that the way that it handles the themes is really well, because a lot of the time, uh, like you said, it's not it's got nothing to do really with just like the tentacles and the monsters. It's about how unspeakable and maddening they are and also about how small and insignificant humanity feels and in this game from the difficulty of it you're not meant to be heroic you're not meant to be like these these uh heroes in a classic fantasy setting who overcome all evils without you know without a price and in this game you're constantly afraid you're constantly feeling small and weak which is you know a really big part of capturing that the essence of cosmic horror so yeah, a lot of people would also be put off by the gameplay because it's super challenging and it has a lot of RNG in it. But actually, it it all it's not just like the developers decided that we're gonna add RNG and challenge here just for the sake of making the game hard. It actually plays into the theme of the game, which is horror and fearing for your life all the time. So this game, like a lot of roguelikes, has permadeath. And it always makes you feel like you're in the brink of death. And whenever you successfully conquer a dungeon, it makes you feel like you did so uh, out of luck. Or like you just got through a breath of a hair, so so to speak. So it really makes you feel um, lucky to survive all of the adventures that you go through. And while you can eventually build a strong enough team that will be able to take care of the smaller monsters much more easily, eventually because of the game's rng it still can throw a curveball in your plans so even if you already have a very strong party in your in your hands um the rng will still make you fear for the life of your characters so there's always so, uh, constant fear in this game and i really so love no point, it at no point do you really feel like Safe. Uh, like a like very heroic and like invincible like at the top of your game you still just one bad roll away from death sort of thing well, one of course, bad roll away from disaster there's not going to be much payoff in a game that will really just put you in a horror situation for the whole game until the end of course there are moments in the game where you will feel heroic and really strong but that's when the game shines because when you get complacent that's when the game really kills off your strongest characters and then you end up with your weak characters going against the strongest monsters in the game so what this game teaches you is never to become complacent. You can have your heroic victories and your big moments in the game, but you should never get complacent. So this game is it's a roguelike, uh, as I understand it, where uh, what happens, like, for example, if you run out of heroes, if like you're in, they all just wipe. Oh, you can so always recruit new ones. 
That's, oh, okay, it's, so you just go that, back to like the town. Yeah, it goes back to how cosmic horror and Lovecraftian horror makes you feel like you're insignificant. All of the characters here are disposable. They're all expendable. Yeah, yeah you're all expendable. So is it a, is it a rogue light or a rogue like where every subsequent playthrough do you have upgrades that will make your entire party a little bit stronger or is it really just a fresh start every time you wipe? Um, it's a rogue light. Um, whenever you start a new uh, playthrough, you start with two characters, but that's pretty much everything that's going to be consistent throughout all of your playthroughs. Uh, everything else, you get a random set of new characters that you can recruit eventually. And you get to decide which dungeons you want to explore first. And depending on which dungeons you explore, you get random trinkets that will help you explore the other dungeons. And yeah, it's it has a gameplay loop that really um, satisfies the dungeon crawler itch. So I've yeah. actually played this game, and for me, it feels. It like fills the same niche as XCOM for me. So one of the few games where I am okay with party members dying. <laughs> so I feel like you can't really finish a game of Darkest Dungeon without losing anyone. So you have to be prepared to let them go. <laughs> and... RNG and party members dying gives me uh, flashbacks to, like XCOM when you have a 93% hit chance and then you miss. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, but th that doesn't happen here. At least this game is very honest with its RNG. When it says it's 73% hit chance, it is 73% hit chance. It's I mean, I, I don't doubt that XCOM is. Uh, I don't doubt XCOM's RNG. It's just that you, you, the ones that I, the moments I remember the most are when my chances of losing are so low, but I, I still lose. Oh, but actually, in 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 XCOM, they really do uh, fool you with the numbers. Like it can tell you that it's 95% hit chance, when it's actually not. I think that's really integrated in the games. Um, it is code. Yeah, oh, I was actually aware of that. Yeah, it, it, I just it, thought I was incredibly unlucky. Yeah, see? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, the game actually rewards you when you're falling behind, and it uh, penalizes you when you're being ahead in XCOM. So if like if it noticed that you haven't, um, if none of your party members died in the past five missions, it'll make sure that one will die in this in this chapter or in this level. There's that wow. kind of aspect in in X, uh, yeah, in XCOM. It's actually new knowledge to me. I always thought that I was, you know, Same. I was just being really unlucky, and then maybe today for this particular role, the universe decided to conspire against me, like it does uh, when I play Fire Emblem, for example, and then I get a permadeath on a character I really like. Yeah. But another thing I want to talk about this game is its accessibility. So, of course, very challenging, but a lot of people love Lovecraftian horror, but not really roguelike. So, people might want to play this game just for the feel of it, because they love the aesthetic. I mean, it's a very stylistic art choice for this game. It really looks good. So, the developers, even though they really wanted their players to have a hard time playing this game, they made sure that there are a lot of accessibility options that can make the game easier. For example, they uh, you can remove uh, permadeath in the game so that your characters just you know fall in combat and you can revive them for the next session, or you can even make uh, corpses not appear in place of dead enemies or characters, which makes the game so much easier. So I think it's a it's props for Red Hook Studios for allowing them to do that. Um, in a way, they allowed the vision of their beta testers to also 
uh, manifest in the final game. So actually, you can play the game the way that the developers intended it to be. But you can always also play the game the way you want it to. And of course, there's also mods for the game which will make the game even much more easier with invincibility and stuff like that. Uh, but I, I think at least before you start doing mods and uh, using the accessibility options, at least try Darkest Dungeon without all of those things and feel the real challenge of the game firsthand. So if you want to experience all of that, and you wanna hurt yourself, you can play this game in PC, uh, PS4, PS Vita, Xbox One, and the Nintendo Switch. And you should get the Ancestral Edition so that you gain access to all of the new DLCs and expansions available for this game. Alright, so onward to my next recommendation. Um, I'm a big fan of stealth action games. So my next recommendation is Dishonored 2. Um, coming from Arcane Studios, and uh, published by Bethesda. Uh, this is the second game in the series from Dishonored, which at its release, I think became game of the year for a lot of publications. Uh, it's a stealth action type, first person stealth action game um, where you play as, in the second game, um, or in the first game, the story is that uh, an empress was murdered and you were her bodyguard and uh, you got framed for it. So after the events of the first game, you've reinstated your position and uh, your daughter with the Empress is now the Empress. And uh, she gets overthrown by somebody who turns out to be a distant, well not distant, a sister of the Empress that nobody knew about who came to reclaim her spot. And so the you and your daughter are both thrown out of the palace and into jail. And uh, similarly to the first game, it's about finding your way back to the top, getting revenge through whatever means the player chooses to use. Uh, Gameplay-wise, it's a stealth action game where you have a very distinct and powerful set of abilities to help you traverse through the level and make use of uh, all of these different uh, moving parts. It's somewhat of a sandbox, similar to uh, Hitman games, if you might be familiar with those, um, where you're given a tool set to accomplish a certain mission in whatever way you see fit. So I think what makes Dishonored unique is just how well thought out all of the powers are. Um, for example, in this game, when you play, you can play as two characters, either Corvo or Emily. They're the father and the daughter, and they have differing powers. Corvo takes his powers from the first game where he has the ability to quickly teleport uh, from one place to another. He has the ability to either slow down or stop time, but depending on which upgrades you get, he can choose to possess uh, rats or people to uh, walk through security systems or vents. Um, uh, he has the ability to make the bodies of any enemy he kills or incapacitates disappear. Whereas Emily has somewhat similar where she has a traversal, uh, traversal ability, but at the same time, she can also use it to pull enemies towards her, which could make for some very interesting situations. She has an ability that forces enemies to enter a dazed state where they sort of stare at a certain direction. And she has an ability that links several enemies together um, so that whatever action you perform on one of them is performed on all of them. So you can imagine the way that all of these different mechanics would interplay with one another when you're going through a level. Um, speaking of levels, the, uh, the level design in Dishonored 2 is absolutely stellar. As much as it, a lot of it comes down to getting from point A to point B, the method in which you find yourself traveling from point A to point B is 
really different depending on how you decide to play the game. Should you want to be incredibly stealthy and never be noticed by any of the guards, you can go in quick and fast and silent, or you could go loud with guns and uh, an arsenal of bombs and explosives and just sword fight your way through entire levels. So the, there's a real variance in the way that you decide to play the game uh, depending on, uh, because of the tools that you're given. So have either of you actually played any of these games? The, this, the, the first game or the second game? Okay, I have a confession to make. Dishonored uh -huh. is actually the franchise I really would like to play if suddenly one day I didn't have motion sickness from first-person games anymore. This is like my number one. If, if I would suddenly wake up, this would be the first game I would play. So this is my biggest regret game that I can't play. <laughs> Maybe there's a mod for it somewhere. This has uh, modding support. Oh, Maybe, shout out yeah, to the modding community again. But yeah. I've never tried playing any of the Dishonored games. It's not really that uh, well talked about. And um, most of the time I would rather play other games. But looking at the trailer or the gameplay footage here, it does look very interesting. It does show you a lot of different ways you can hack and slash through enemies, shoot at them and use your powers to either defeat opponents or get past them stealthily. Uh, me, myself, I'm not... I, I'm a fan of stealth games. Like, I would say I'd love to play stealth games. But my impatience most of the time gets in the way. So, like, I play Metal Gear Solid. But thankfully, in that game, you have guns. And when the, the people... Uh, when the enemies catch you... You can always just shoot them in the head and, you know, uh, get out of the stealthy part. And also in Assassin's Creed, I tried to stealthily go inside uh, forts and bases or uh, residences and things like that and stealthily kill, my, all, kill off all of my opponents. But most of the time, when I get spotted by the enemy, it's more like a, a, I breath a sigh of relief that I don't have to hide in the shadows and I can just... <laughs> slash my way through so i'm not sure if that kind of gameplay can be supported in dishonored if it can then i probably give this game a try oh it, it definitely can you're given a lot of options you're not confined to really only playing stealth um some people can even uh some people can even go through the entire game without actually being stealthy much at all uh it a lot of sections might be a bit difficult if you choose not to stealth but you can definitely fight your way through here with uh, guns, crossbows, and swords. And uh, there's a lot of upgrades that get really tailored to your playstyle, uh, both in the abilities, the supernatural abilities of the main characters, as well as the gadgets that they make use of, like their swords and their guns and their crossbows. It... So that's another thing. Hmm? Yeah, go, Sorry. go on. Uh, yeah, but the, the other thing about Dishonored, and another thing that I really enjoy about it, is the fact that your method of playing, the way that you decide to approach the different challenges in the game, also affects the story of the game. Um, they have this meter called the Chaos Meter, which will affect the events and the outcomes of the game, and as well as your ending, uh, depending on how how much of a, how you know how how chaotic, how destabilizing your actions have been throughout the game. Because what you're trying to do in both games, basically, is trying to overthrow an empire, and you're outnumbered uh, by a hundred of guard, like hundreds of guards, and all of their machinery and all of their bases. And uh, there are story implications to the way that you decide to play. If you go all guns blazing, high chaos, and you kill a whole bunch of people, then obviously, you know, they would have less people to do the kind of work that they would normally have to do, and it could lead to a far more messy ending. 
uh, compared to if you're going stealthy. And while both endings are kind of uh, morally gray, it's just that, you know, depending on your method of playing, you're, de you're definitely going to have a different experience with the game's story overall. And as for the game's story, I think it's a really good story. Like, it's, it's very well written, and the world is really, really interesting. There's so many tidbits of information um, on the unique sort of... Uh, how do people describe it? It's, it's kind of like the world of Dishonored is sort of like a steampunk-adjacent world where uh, the fans of the series call it whale punk because mm. most of the machinery, as much as it looks like steampunk machinery, it's got all of the, the normal uh, you know, aesthetic embellishments that we normally associate with steampunk. Everything, most of the machinery in the world of Dishonored is powered by whale oil or electricity which runs on whale oil. Interesting. I see. So it's like still steampunk except you change the energy source. Yeah, but yeah. at the same time, uh, there's also this whole supernatural and uh, religious aspect to it because um, Dishonored, you have access to these supernatural powers because of the blessing of the outsider who is a, a sort of like dark god revered by others of society. Um, they are vilified by the Church of the Overseer, the, the Abbey of the Overseer, which is the most common religion. And he's basically considered like a, a sort of... Um, you know, an evil figure to the common person. But he's also the one who blesses you with your powers. And uh, he is very much associated with whales. Oh, okay, uh, I see. <laughs> yeah. So looking at the gameplay, it actually, um, the, it feels like a very fast-paced version of Bioshock. How far apart the gameplay? If you play Bioshock, of course. Uh, I've played some of the first game, and I played Infinite, which I don't feel like is very, uh, you know, expressive of what Bioshock originally was in the first two games. It's not necessarily fast. The footage that I picked for this one was actually from a YouTuber called Stealth Gamer BR, and uh, it happens to be that he is very, very skilled at speedrunning, and these are very practiced runs of his. Uh, what he's doing is not normally what most people would be doing in the game. It's not something that I'm capable in the, of doing in the game because it takes an incredible amount of skill and coordination to actually pull off uh, the sort of moves that he does here. Um, on average, a lot of the time, it can play like your average, uh, you know, your, your average stealth game where you can just choose to sneak around guards, try to follow their patrol patterns, and then decide when it would be best to slip past them or silently dispatch of them, hiding them in areas that would be away from the sight of the other guards, that sort of thing. So the gameplay isn't necessarily fast-paced. It really just comes down to the method that you decide to play it. Uh, that The choice that you have on how you play the game will really affect your experience with it. It does really feel like there's a lot of things you can do in this game just from looking at this particular gameplay yeah. footage. It's really intriguing actually. I wanna try it at least once because I don't have motion sickness like Kyle so I can afford playing it, I think. Have fun. <laughs> Yeah, but not even, could, uh, would you even be able to like not even watch like a let's play, Cal? I feel I like the story to... is worthwhile enough for you to actually, even if you don't manage to play it yourself, as much as it would probably be best to do that, it's perfectly fine to also just watch a let's play because the story is really nice. It's really good. I'll look into it, but I feel like I'll have to set the screen to like really small <laughs> so that I can watch it without getting dizzy. And something else I have to bring up about Dishonored is how well-written and immersive the world is. Um, 
similarly to what you might find in a regular RPG like uh, Skyrim or Fallout, you know those those just tidbits of information everywhere, books and journals and uh, things about history and the world around you in these uh, fantasy or sci-fi settings and games. Dishonored has the same thing, but you can just miss all of it because it's not your most standard RPG. Like you're not really incentivized to go ahead and grab this information. I'm willing to bet that you could probably go through the whole game without actually really knowing what's going on. But I feel like that's doing a big disservice to it because all of those tidbits of information, they're interesting and they're relevant to the world around you. And you start to understand why things look the way they look in the game, um, why certain characters are the way they are in the game. If you decide to take the time to really, you know, slow down and piece together all the information that the developers have painstakingly put in the world. Really sounds like an interesting game. Where can I play this? So Dishonored, both the original game and the second game are available on PC, PS4, and Xbox One. I am not sure if they've actually made an announcement for next generation console releases. I bet it will come one day. I mean, the masters are all the all the talk, all the rave this this uh, console this generation. Gen- like it doesn't feel like there's any new games actually. It's all remasters and remakes. But well, not... they want you to buy the new console to drag you yeah. in with your favorites. <laughs> yeah, but it's not really that bad. I mean, it gives an opportunity for people like me to uh, play catch the up. older games and catch up. You know, there's a benefit for that. But yeah, it really makes feel like your PS5 is just a brick right now because there's not really a lot of games to play. But anyway. And if, <laughs> if ever you decide to play Dishonored, uh, I would suggest starting with the first game, playing the second game, and playing through all of the DLCs, as the DLCs put you in the shoes of different characters who are related to both the first and the second game. And they all have a different set of abilities and their own stories to tell. Man, it looks so fun. Yeah, right. so if ever Cal ends up losing her motion sickness, she can start playing Dishonored <laughs> One too. day. But for now, uh, Cal has oh, something else on. to recommend. Okay, let's move on to my last individual recommendation. This one is a bit more different than other strategy or simulation games that I play. But this is like my indie darling game for last year. So it's called Foundation and it's a really chill medieval city builder. So uh, as you can see from the trailer the graphics are like really cutesy and it's like this very well there's no other way to describe it for me than chill so this is the first city builder that i played that finally frees me from the prison of the grid so (laughs) this city builder doesn't have squares where i need to optimize the distance of my houses from their workplaces and the pathways are built by the people themselves. So as they walk around the place, the paths get like built automatically based on the most common pathways that your AI villagers take. So it goes like a organically without you controlling, oh, the road has to be a three by three grid where all the residential areas are separated from the industrial areas like that in most city builder games. Cause sometimes I can't help, but like, my mindset is already like that 
like pre-built like from SimCity days until City Skylines, I still play the same way. So this is the first city builder that I feel so free because most of the the layout, like the general layout is still yours to decide, right? So you put the major buildings where they are, but how to get there is dependent on your villagers. So they'll make the paths, they'll build their house. You just zone like uh, an area and then they'll build their houses as they like. But you, the civic buildings like the churches and the, the government buildings, you control where those get placed and then they you can actually customize them piece by piece so you can there's like a bit of design in it as well not all the churches look the same if you don't make them look the same the so times. yeah it's quite it's very cute uh i really feel like this game is a bit closer to like keeping an aquarium or like gardening because it like grows slowly by itself and then you just watch it grow not to say that there are no like resource management stuff in it because there's still a bunch of that but as you can see in this trailer you can like build castles piece by piece you can it, it's like building a diorama but with ai villagers that live inside it so <laughs> would you consider it a very accessible city builder for like say people who are new to the genre or uh people who had don't have a lot of um you know, people who don't really have the like for optimizing all of these sorts of things that you normally have to think about in city builders. Yep, definitely. This is a very like the mechanics mechanically. It's very easy to get into, and it doesn't like pressure you with like traffic jams every five minutes. Yeah. And then uh, it lets you, you know, like do it at your own pace and expand on your own. So. Mm, the one drawback for a new player would probably be not having like an extensive tutorial because it's still in early access, right? So they're still work working out the kinks and fixing the UI and stuff like that. So there's still a bunch of stuff they have to work on. But uh, as foundationally, haha, it's, <laughs> it's a really good start for people new to the city builder simulator genre, I think. Yeah, I can actually see someone new to the genre uh, getting introduced to this and knowing right off the bat what to do because uh, I think it's very self-explanatory anyway how yeah. the buildings uh, are supposed to function and you already mentioned that it doesn't really pressure you to meet these criteria for advancement and things like that. You can just build your own little town the way you want it to be like but as someone coming from experience in city building, I think I'm going to have a hard time getting used to the freeform aspect of this game without having all the grids and stuff. Like, I think I'm going to get annoyed by how um, some things might overlap in terms of space and like, and getting like um, OCD for all of the small spaces that uh, end up being in between two buildings just because they don't add up into a whole square on the tiles. But I think if I get over that little OCD I have in city building, this game could be like a very chill game to play on a chill Saturday afternoon. It, so, it definitely is. What about for the complexity of it? Because if it's easy to get into, like it's accessible for people who uh, might be new to the genre or want a chiller experience. How does it stack up in terms of complexity? Should you want to think about the complexities of it? Like, is it still as engaging enough for saw like a seasoned city builder veteran, for example? 
for me, mostly most of the joy in it came from it being so different to what I'm used to. Because I used to come from like ano stuff like like watching so many graphs and kind of spreadsheeting my way through <laughs> through the city, right? So this one, the main draw in was the freedom. It's not really as complex as games like that, but it is still in early access. So there's still a bunch of directions this game can grow into. Right now, the villagers don't really feel like individual people yet, but I guess most city builders really reduce your your villagers into like stats and numbers. But I feel like this game, once it's like full and they start, they finally release the final version. I feel like it's gonna be like my go-to chill out kind of game. It's not nearly as uh, complex as the other city builders, but it has its own charm in a way. Yeah, I think one of the ways that the developers can do to spice up these games to add weather effects and you know, this very carefully planned city that you make that looks so homey and vibrant gets destroyed by a whole typhoon, you know, oh, that no. kind of stuff. But, I feel like yeah. there's a very different thing that you're looking for in this game. Uh, yeah, you know what? When I used to play SimCity and I get bored, you know, you can call down meteors, right? And have UFOs, UFOs attack your city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. But um, I, I think that's one of the beauty of uh, early access games. If you tell the developers enough what you want the game to be like, they might, you know put them in so as you mentioned there's still a lot of direction that the game can take and if you want to be part of that process you should play the game and join in the early access uh, community of foundation so in what you know in 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 what uh, consoles or platforms is this game available on now it's only available on PC specifically steam so yeah so uh, we really put out. We really should put out the word for this game. It looks so homey, and I think the devs deserve yeah. much more attention. It's so cute. Ah, I love this game. All right. Speaking of the grid, I feel like <laughs> the next game will bring us back to it. Uh... <laughs> All right. <laughs> so yeah, for the final individual recommendation that we have, or I have, is Final Fantasy Tactics: The War of the Lions. As Cal mentioned it's all in a grid and I think out of all the games we talked about so far this one is the least accessible only because it was originally released for the actually the original Final Fantasy Tactics game was released in the PS1 and the War of the Lions version was released in the PSP way back in 2007 but thankfully if you don't have a PSP lying around you can still play this game on iOS and Android devices which I think is the a definitive way to play the game because they have already upgraded the graphics to HD visuals. If you play the PSP version, you still see lots of pixels. So yeah, if you want, if you want to play this game, go play the mobile version. And it's a turn-based tactics game from Square Enix. It's like the nth game we've recommended from that company. In the fourth. Yeah, uh, I think more than the fourth. I I'm not sure. But in this game, you command a party of characters led by Ramza Beowulf, a squire or knight in training. And here you get to build an army or actually a squad of characters that you can really mold into your liking. Because as you play, 
and gain levels and also job points which you can use to unlock new abilities for your current job class. Now the beauty here is you can mix and match up to two different job classes at a time to really cater or to tailor fit your playstyle here. So you can set up a main job and a sub job so you can mix and match the abilities of two job classes. Of course, you can always min-max the way out of here and you can like make a really cheesy character that one-shots everyone through the abilities that they have and the equipment they have. But I think the beauty of this game is it gives you a personalized way to play the game. It's not like other tactics games that, well, there's a lot of tactics games nowadays that have... Um, that gives you a lot of customization options for your characters. But way back, Tactics was very innovative in a way that it lets you really mold the characters that you have um, with you. So because of its many jobs and classes, it has a lot of deep mechanics that makes the game more fleshed out, engaging, and challenging. And because of the different ways to build your characters, it lets you approach battles in every way you prefer. Whether or not you're into close quarters combat, or if you like using magic, or if you like using ranged weapons. So I'm generally a big fan of turn-based tactics games. I played Advance Wars, Tactics Ogre, Final Fantasy Tactics Advance, and Fire Emblem. But I really like War of the Lions and it really stands out for me because of the political, well-written plot it has. It's full of political intrigue, twists and turns, and an overarching plot that catches the main characters in a web of lies. I already said that in the intro video from last week, but I'm gonna say it again because that's really how I want to um, frame the game. And the, the, the beauty of this is it really makes you feel like you're just a part of a cog, or you're just a cog in a machine rather, uh, starting out in the game. But eventually, your character decides to really put his fate into his hands and decides to become more of an active character in a, in a really large political environment here. And really makes you feel empowered that, you know, that even if you're just a small being in a really large picture, you can still affect the, how the whole picture will move eventually if you have the guts to really uh, take your fate into your own hands. So I love how the main characters at the start start out as pawns and eventually they take on the masters that they serve and really affect the story of the game. Well, of course, since this is an RPG game, it has a set um, start and a set end. You can't really affect the story, how it will end. It doesn't have any branching storylines. But the way they wrote the plot in a way that the characters you care about in this game uh, shapes and molds the world around them. It's really a fantastic way to write a, a plot of a game. And the way this game was written, the story of uh, the way that the story of this game was written really made me uh, really encouraged me to write my own stories as a child. So my writing career actually started with this game, mostly because of the pretentious English that it has. It made me feel like I'm a smart ass for using thou shalt it all that crap but uh apart from that very pretentious part of uh writing it really has very good writing really good dialogue and a really great plot that you should really see unfold uh, on yourself so 
I'm also encouraging everyone to play the War of the Lions version. Even if you have a PlayStation 1 lying around, please don't subject yourself to that. Don't play the original Final Fantasy Tactics because that one had terrible localization issues. Like It had very bad translations for the text and this doesn't really give the game much justice. And most of all, the War of the Lions version has a lot of new storylines, a lot of side quests, and even cameos from other Final Fantasy games like Cloud appears in this game and Luso from Final Fantasy Tactics Advance. You can recruit them in the game and use them for the rest of the game. So it came out on the PSP but if you don't have that lying around, you can also play it on Android and iOS. So that's going to be it. Um, at least for me, do you guys have any experience with other Tactics games? I haven't Actually, played uh, much of Final Fantasy Tactics. Uh, mostly my experience with Tactics games comes from the Fire Emblem series. The more modern games, specifically uh, Fire Emblem Fates, Fire Emblem Heroes, the Gacha game which I wouldn't recommend. The Power Creep. And probably you've played Three Houses? Yeah, Three Houses and Awakening as well. Yeah. How about you, Cal? You like Tactics games? I like tactics games, but most of the ones that I've played are, well, XCOM, Disgaea. I've also played War of the Lions, but it's actually like one of my biggest Final Fantasy sins that I haven't finished this game. Oh, you got so turned if... off by the pretentious English. No, I loved it. <laughs> I actually really, really, really wanted, because I love Evil East, right? Because I played FF12 and uh, the world building in this game is amazing. I feel like Evil East is like FF's best world building, so that's FF Tactics and FF12, right? The the politics and the races and how they all interplay with each other is great. But I played it on the PSP, like near near the Twilight era of my PSP, and then I got to the there's a level where you're fighting in a castle gate, and then Ramza is like inside the gate with the boss, and then. Oh, the rest of the party is like stuck outside, outside. it. Yeah, I remember yeah. that level. Yeah, so I kind of got stuck there for a while and then eventually when I tried to go back to it, my save file was like not working anymore because you know how janky the PSP used to be. <laughs> so I never got to finish it. I feel like one day I'll get back to it. So Square Enix, please re-release it on Steam. <laughs> uh, we can also give a shameless plug saying that the true ending to the tale of Tactics is actually an FF14. Yes, you should also play. Oh really? No. Okay, that's yeah. gonna. That's gonna. Oh, all right. That uh, convinces the, me. Twenty-four <laughs> man raids in the Stormblood expansion of FF14 features the characters from Tactics, and it gives a definitive ending to their tale. It is yep. Stormblood the, within are... the sixty levels free no. game? Uh, oh no! It's, it's the one directly after that. Yep. Uh, okay. At least I'll just have to subscribe for like one or two months to get there. Yeah. The <laughs> The Evil East raids are my favorite instances in FF14, especially the third one, Orbon Monastery. It's so good. The fights are good, the mechanics are amazing. You have to do math in one of them. And then the environments are really good. And, and I also imagine soundtrack. that people who would be fans of tactics uh, would have also gotten a real good kick out of the, the, story. Uh, the Evil East raids. Yeah. Great. Oh, we also didn't mention Nier Automata. Is also... Oh, yeah, Nier Automata. They, they have a collab with uh, FF14. Yep, they're and, the uh, I don't know. I don't know. Knowing Yoko Taro, do you think it might actually be canon? I think it might be. I think it might be. Oh my gosh. 
That actually reminds me I haven't finished the story of the Nier Raids yet. Because I stopped after I cleared the dungeon and then I didn't finish the rest. I haven't actually been subscribed to do the third Nier Raid. It's it's quite good. It, I feel like the first one is the best one. In like, terms of... Theme-wise? Like, Nier-wise? <laughs> ah. The second but, one's kind of weird. Yeah, the second one's kind of more... different. <laughs> Uh, but, also, the mechanics on the first one is fun. But actually, I don't really think that Square Enix will... I, I don't feel so confident that they're going to remake or bring back The War of the Lions. Uh, the War of the Lions actually feels like a bit like a black sheep of the evilist world. You know, this doesn't really have all the other races like the other evilist games. You don't have the Viera here. You don't I have... Suppose it's... It is the oldest of the Evilist games. Yeah, the, at this point in Final Fantasy's history, Evilist wasn't that fleshed out yet. So mm. while I think I, I'm not sure where this places in the timeline of Evilist, but um, all you get here is medieval kind of things. So if think about knights with magic powers. That's pretty much what you'll get. You don't have a lot of um, guns. You, you do have guns. You have access to like steampunk things here. Uh, you have steam-powered guns and steam-powered robots and golems here. But you really can't expect to see a lot of the other creatures that you see in other Final Fantasy Tactics games, especially in the Advance. And actually, it's even uh, feels like disjointed, even it's in its own Final Fantasy Tactics uh, franchise, you know? It, it feels very different to Final Fantasy Tactics Advance and the one on the DS in terms of feel, in terms of story, and in terms of the characterization of the characters in the game. So it's really a different beast in itself. It feels like a game that Square Enix really forgot about already. It's much like Sleeping Dogs. But thankfully, thankfully, um, the original team who worked on The War of the Lions is also making a new game right now for the Nintendo Switch. It's called uh, Project Triangle Strategy. That's not the final title. They unveiled it during Nintendo Direct back in February. And I'm really looking forward to that game because they say it's going to be the spiritual successor of The War of the Lions. And I've actually and, uh, played through the demo. demo out. Yeah, and there was a demo out and I played through it and it really felt like The War of the Lions that I fell, fell in love with. But the demo isn't around anymore because it was only out for like two weeks or I think just a one weekend so that they get feedback from the fans. And the feedback from the fans was really good. And I really hope that they release that game earlier in 2022 because I really need to take care of that itch of the tactics game for me. And I'm pretty sure that uh, while Square Enix will have a spiritual successor to it, I don't think they're really going to be doing anything that's directly related to the War of the Lions specifically, especially because of, you know, that new gacha game. Well, not really new anymore at this point, but War of the Visions, right? Oh yeah, I, I also play that game because it also takes care of the itch of the Final Fantasy Tactics for me. But it's really different, you know, uh, this game is structured as a single player game that you'll play through and through. If you infuse gacha mechanics to it, it kind of feels different already. Although the gameplay uh, of building your character and um, the turn-based tactics gameplay is there, the customization of the characters and the political drama that War of the Lions had before 
didn't really translate well in the War Divisions game. I still love War Divisions just because it's a tactics game that's really, uh, the gameplay is really well made, and you can still play it as a tactics game on its Not own, but still a gacha game, so it's kind of different. And you know, uh, another reason why I think uh, Square Enix will never go back to the War of the Lions anymore is because. Evilis is much more structured and much more fleshed out right now and I don't think that the current world of Evilis will fit into the old Evilis in the War of the Lions. Like if you're a fan of Evilis now and you've never seen this side of Evilis, I don't think it'll be easy for you to transition. So yeah, I think Final Fantasy uh, Square Enix already gave up on this concept of Evilis way 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 long before. Which is kinda sad. But at least you can play this on your smartphone. So download it on the Google Play Store and the Apple Play Store. It's kind of pricey though for an old game, but it's well worth it, I'm telling you. Mm. Alright, so that was our find, the final of our solo recommendations. But three of us have talked and agreed upon one last recommendation that the three of us have all played and would all like to uh, give as a recommendation to all the viewers. Yeah, you guys wouldn't believe how long it took us <laughs> to yeah, settle we were... on one game. Yeah, we were this close to recommending Dota 2 because that's the only game that all of us were playing at the same time. <laughs> and then we discovered, oh, we've all played this game actually. And yeah, so, it's also a it, really great game that we'd like to recommend. So, so at the end of it, we settled with Persona 4. Yep, okay. Uh, I'll start, I guess. Persona 4 isn't actually my favorite Persona game. Uh, that honor belongs to Persona 3. Uh, but P4, I feel, is the easiest one to recommend to like a newcomer. I feel like P5, while it's like more modern and the mechanics are more fleshed out, and the you know the UI and the music and the big hype it got when it came out, I feel like the themes are a bit more heavy in a way like more society and our place in it you know oppression stuff like that i feel like p4 is a bit more approachable to a new audience that doesn't usually play you know anime jrpgs uh this p4 also has my favorite soundtrack and favorite playable party so i really like the characters in this game and how they interplay with each other um i feel like P5's biggest uh, drawback is the way that all the characters seem to revolve only ab around the main person. Like, everyone else doesn't really have their own story relationships with each other. Oh, yeah, okay. A aside from, like, they only connect to the main character and that's the only way they connect with each other. Aside, like, as opposed to here where you see uh, characters be, fr like, go out and be friends on their own without you having to initiate the social link for them to hang out with each other so that's how that's one of the reasons why i really like p4 and 3 uh, um what else i haven't played the golden version but i feel like that can only add more good to what is already a really good game yeah actually so, the base so, game is yeah. already chock full with content you add more in golden and just to clarify actually we also recommend Persona 3 and Persona 5. Don't don't like get the wrong yeah. idea. It's just that Persona 4 for me personally it's, it arrived in my life in a very special moment or at, at least it arrived at the right time uh, in my developmental years growing up. 
so this is one of the last great games for the PlayStation 2 and I was I believe towards uh, the end of grade school when I played this game so back then kids we only had uh, up until grade 6 before we go to high school so uh, I was in grade 6 when this came out and I played that and it really taught me how to well this is going to be really uh, you know very cringy but it taught me how to socialize and understand other people because that's the entire theme of Persona 4 like understanding yourself knowing that yourself uh, with other people is different from the yourself uh, by your own like the very concept of persona is having like the the word persona itself it means mask in I think Greek or something like that uh, the 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 overlying concept here is that the face you show to different characters in the game is different and it allows you to like embrace those different facets of your personality and makes you realize that you are not just a singular like being, uh, you, you shouldn't sh shoehorn or you shouldn't pigeonhole yourself into just this one kind of personality, and you have to accept or like realize that you are uh, built up by different facets of your personality coming off your relationships with a lot of different people. So it really made me realize that uh, I can be myself, but still at the same time accept the different aspects of myself when I'm with others and accept that people might be acting different when they're around other people and acting differently when they're with me and that's okay. Uh, yeah, it, it, this game really spoke to me at a very personal level, uh, especially since it came out during my, you know, pre- uh, I, I, Was that preteen or- um, Preteen, well, preteen. During my puberty. Yeah. Let's just say during my <laughs> puberty. And it's like, this game's really great game to- well, I'm not sure if that's right to say because this game is actually a mature only game so it's you're supposed to play this when you're 18 and above but really the uh, the, the ideas and the concepts that they brought I out in this game this uh, an adult. Yeah, really Same. help um, develop my personality growing up uh, it's so cringe talking about it this way but yeah um, as a as a as a what do you call this as a as a person going through puberty and getting exposed to this kind of topics, it was like getting sex ed for for some reason, you know. But for they understand. No, yeah, <laughs> I, I actually I actually understand it's it because like this sex came out around, for... this, around the same time for me. Like I was I wasn't into high school yet, and yeah, I wasn't in high school yet, and it I, I do understand what you mean. Like as as kind of strange and as kind of cringy as it might sound, like this game I feel like was also really important to me and uh, my acceptance of myself at the time and I guess you know I can't say that it didn't really I can say that it definitely had an impact until now and the themes that it deals with are always relevant to people who are going through that phase of their life and I feel like that's one reason that we can recommend it yeah I think if you play this if maybe in your late 30s you might cringe at the topics because you're already well off in life in terms of socialization or like uh, getting uh, your feet on the ground and uh self-actualization right right yeah. um uh, one of the problems the characters here face is that they are very concerned with how other people perceive them right and like one of the things that this game teaches you is to accept uh you know not not really disregarding how other people see you but accepting that there are different 
you, you have different kinds of personalities. I don't know how to word this correctly. You guys could help me out here. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, basically, like at, at its core, it's a game about accepting the self and uh, all of the different aspects of you that come with that. Yeah, even the flaws. Like at the end of each boss fight here, the characters realize that yes, they might be what other people think them. You know, the toxic traits that other people assign to them might be exaggerated, but they also have to, you know, confront those negative aspects of their personality and accept them as being part of them so that they can become better people, you know? As for the game itself, it's a rather, combat is a, paints it as a very traditional RPG, but outside of, you know, the, the uh, classic the JRPG, turn-based. actually, outside of the turn-based uh, JRPG-style combat, I think that's where the game really shines for me because the gameplay is interesting enough to keep me going, but it's really the story and the interactions you have outside of combat, which I think is the meat of the game. Yeah, the day-to-day sort of like life simulation kind of deal is really the best part of Persona games for me. It's it's watching uh, these characters that you'll eventually learn to uh, like really relate with or really like or just be really invested in it, even if that includes being, even that includes disliking them. Yeah. Uh, you, you learn to be really invested in the kind of characters that are here and the way that they interact with each other and the way that they interact with your uh, protagonist and the way you play them. And I feel like that's the biggest draw of Persona games. It's more of the RP aspect than it is the gaming aspect of it. But it's still a solid, you know, JRPG at its core. Yeah, I've seen people like do really like optimal persona management and get the the best personas to fight with i'm like uh, i'm more of a story kind of person so i didn't really grind extra well that's a different thing maxing the social links is different from like managing all the stats of yeah. your personas and uh grinding your way through uh, you know optimizing your days so you only spend one day grinding all the way to the level you need yeah. to the boss. Yeah. <laughs> Although in, in one of my subsequent playthroughs, I actually did that because I wanted to make sure that I could use all of my days uh, to max out my social links and all that. I but, feel like everyone usually goes through uh, try to max out all the social links playthrough. I tried to do that as well. <laughs> I had to use the help of a guide because I didn't want to think too much about how to manage my days. Yeah, scheduling, uh, too complex. But <laughs> actually, uh, you know, Final Fantasy and uh, Dragon Quest, they, like the progenitors of the uh, JRPG JR- formula. And, you know, looking at Persona, it doesn't really deviate much from how the formula is like. But the Persona series really touches on some things and really accomplishes some things that Final Fantasy and Dragon, Dragon Quest, Quest never really were able to, at least for Final Fantasy 15, I guess you can touch on uh, personal relations there, but not really as deep as um, Persona games do. So I, I think if you're only for JRPG games, like you want to play um, innovative JRPG games, you really won't find that in Persona games. But it really offers something else differently. Yeah. In terms of gameplay and uh, structure. Although I would say in terms of story and the uh, writing, it's very unique in that aspect and I don't think any games any games that I know of outside of the Persona series can really provide that same experience 
feel like it's because the topics and the way the story is presented in Persona is so close to home. Like yeah. these are like actual high schoolers that are going through <laughs> their day to day life. Maybe relatable to you when you went through high school. Yeah. Man, imagine a Persona game set in college. Oh, you actually have time going to the dungeons? <laughs> I think part I, of the... I feel like I actually had more free time in <laughs> yeah, college. Yeah, I would have really. more free time compared uh, to high school. If you have Persona in college, it, there's going to be portions where you'll have to decide which classes to cut, I feel like. <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> you can we join more than one uh... club. <laughs> join all the clubs. Neglect your studies, go into dungeons with your parties. <laughs> yeah. That's not a. That's. We don't, well, we don't condone we don't, that. We don't really endorse that, yeah. Yeah, we don't yeah. encourage that. <laughs> but yeah. It does happen. Uh, as, as, <laughs> as, as Cal mentioned earlier, also great soundtrack by the great Soji Meguro. I'm not sure if he also composed Persona 5 soundtrack, but. Yeah, he yeah his, his work is really. Really it's good. amazing. Stellar work. Music to my ears. Well, of course, it's music to my ears because it's music. I like all three Persona games soundtrack, but four is pretty special to me. I don't know why I like it the most, but I like it the most. <laughs> the, the music makes you feel um, nostalgic, really. Yeah, it's nostalgic Part- and joyful, but also sad. <laughs> like you, you remember know, it, your... It basically, it touches on all the bases of yeah. you remembering high school. From the melancholy to the, the happiness yeah. to the, yeah, you know, yeah, it's it's really just overall good soundtrack. Even outside of the context of the game, you can just listen to it. And out of the, and out of the three Persona games that we were choosing from, I think if you look back to Persona games way ahead in the future, you'd look at Persona Four uh, most fondly, like it has the most nostalgia factor among the three games mostly because of the themes exactly as you've already mentioned over and over again because in persona 3 what do you talk about you talk about death it's so gruesome why 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 would you like to look back to that right in persona 5 you talk about um oppression society inequalities inequalities. like those are really great topics that those two games did really good um explanations of and explored them well enough for you know get you some for, really yeah, good for the thinking. audience to digest and to make a cohesive story out of but it's not it's really just you... that major faction that that big factor of persona being persona 4 being very very relatable to the three of us is the reason that we chose it over the other two games yeah yeah very personal and hope if you do decide to play this game which is actually out on playstation on all f- platforms since playstation 2 and on pc it's also on PC now. Yeah. Uh, yeah regardless of golden is on PC. Yeah, regardless yep. of at which point you are in your life, even if you're an adult now, we hope that the game still resonates with you, the you same way it resonated with us. Yeah, we hope you find something relevant to you in the game and it, the themes that it chooses to explore. So, that was it. Um, those were our 16 recommended games. Oh my so, god, we... you guys, uh, this actually went on a lot longer than I thought it would. We almost <laughs> reached three hours, wow. <laughs> yeah, we promise we'll try. We'll, we promise that we'll try to make it shorter next time, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, so do you guys like our recommendations? Um, you have things you agree with, things you disagree with, or what about games that you would want to recommend to other people? You can just mention it in the comments. Or recommend to us. 
Yeah, you can send us an email. Uh, we'll have all of our social media links on the description. And yeah. So, you know, we hope to get your feedback, guys, so we can help make the next uh, episode a little more tailored to the content that you want to listen to. And yeah, uh, we'd also like to know what games you'd recommend for us, like what uh, Q said earlier, and we might even play them in this channel sometime in the future, because, you know, that's kind of stuff that we look forward to doing here in the channel in Off Cooldown. So we hope that we hear feedback from you so that we can tailor content to what you guys would like to see and hear from in the future. Thank you well, so much. Thanks for tuning in. That's it for today's episode. I'm Q. And I've I'm been Cal. neutral. And <laughs> <laughs> Yikes, yeah. I'm Cal. And I'm neutral. And you were watching the Off Cooldown podcast. We'll see you in the next one. <laughs>